0: the uh, classic, great songs of the uh, easy listening era, and I'm drawing a blank of the songwriter who who came up with that. It was his his real name was Chester Bob Bobcat, I believe, and he went and changed his name by looking at the shirt he wore probably think of it after Patricia and I t- talked about it. And the reason why I know, he used to go out with my second mom, Kitty Cowan. So I'll think of the name a little bit. He used to be the songwriter for Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. Hello, Patricia.
1: Hello, Alden. You never miss a name. You're going to think of it in like 30 seconds.
0: Uh-huh. Patricia, I, I, yeah. I got something to say. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know about you, Uh the best way I can recall names is when I just relax, and I don't think about it then it comes to me,
1: uh-huh,
0: or if I wake up at three in the morning it'll come to me
1: oh, I don't do that,
0: you know, but you know if I just relax uh and I know it's right there and it'll it'll come to me um, in fact tomorrow night everybody um we we are gonna bring back the Ray Bream interviews um, Uh, Sunday night after midnight Eastern time, and what I'm going to choose is on Fred Allen. uh, Ray Breen had an author named Robert Taylor who wrote a book called Fred Allen, My Life and Wit, and it's almost three hours. But the first half of it, they had a surprise phone call from the very famous songwriter Sammy Kahn on so you'll hear a little bit about Sammy Kahn, Kahn uh, in, being in, in Chicago. Sammy Kahn wrote a lot of great songs, What It Snow, What the Snow, many, many songs. He and his uh, songwriting pair, uh, songwriting team uh, were really sort of responsible for Doris Day's big start in the movie because they were looking for a new face because they wanted to write a few songs. You know, they had Oscar Levant picked out and everybody. Romance on the high seat, and they were at a dinner party, and they saw Doris Day, and they said, hey, will you come do this for us? She said yes, and they had they had It's Magic and everything else, and that sort of launched her career. But anyway, that's what songwriters do. I
1: love the Ray Breen interviews.
0: They are classic. Oh, they are. He
1: was so cool. I, I, are you going to have any more
0: you know, personal contact with him? Uh, oh, so sure. I got an email and everything, you bet. You know, um if I can just, if I can just get, uh, if I can just get Ray to say, hey, I'll come on. You know, he, uh, he, he used to do the old night for 30 some odd years, and I think he just tried to have somewhat normal hours. So, who knows, you know? But I, I do, I do talk to, uh, I do change emails with Ray. Um huh? best time I always should just pick up the phone and call him. But, uh he's
1: run out of interviews please call him he is just such a wonderful storyteller
0: yeah
1: oh such a great voice to listen to and I enjoy them so much so I'm really glad you're going to be doing them
0: yep I've been st- I've been keeping them on ice during the holidays but as you know the snow melting in Florida we can bring them out
1: oh my goodness <laughs> oh we did not do well this winter did we oh gosh it, it really has been difficult for I'm um, I mean, for the average person, you can just put on a coat and bear it. But um, you know, for people like our farmers and Orange Grove and Citrus Grove owners and tourists who are paying $200 a day for a room and it's too cold to go out on the beach, <laughs> it, it really was difficult for an awful lot of people. This was the longest cold spell we have had in 60 years. Wow. And it was a humdinger. We were below freezing on night after night after night. And it just, I'm not built for this. No, you left, you left the northeast to get away from it, and it came down to follow you. That's not I am fair. much too delicate for it. <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling people, but most of them don't believe me. <laughs> so, anyhow. Um...
2: Uh oh
0: you think we're going pick, to pick up the phone and say hello? Hi. Hello, caller. Hi. And who's this I'm talking to?
2: You're talking to Ron from Hawaii. Hello, Ron. How are you? Oh. I'm fine. I enjoyed that interview with a writer that you had on earlier.
0: Ah, uh, Tom Cook. He was a very nice guy.
2: Yeah. Um. And he must be... Uh, how old would you think he is?
0: Well, as, um... Chris Kringle said he's, he's uh, older than teeth, and it's the same age as his tongue. <laughs>
2: okay. Hey, did, did you say that Kitty Callen was your second mother? Uh-huh. She served
0: it after me, yeah. She is my second mom.
2: You know, <clears throat> I, I went to a funeral about three weeks ago. Right. And I played, well, I had to play, uh, the, the gal that died, her favorite song was <clears throat> Chapel in the Moonlight.
0: You want to know a secret about that song?
2: Well, I know it was recorded by Katie Talbot. Yes.
0: You want to know an inside secret? Go ahead. She did not like the song.
2: She did not? She
0: did not. She only did it as a favor to save somebody's job. Oh, my God. Um, because she was the hottest thing in 1954. And uh, she decided, she had... um. One record section left on her contract. So she went in and recorded Little Things Mean a Lot. And they had to come up with one more side. And there was a friend who was a song plugger who was desperately trying to hold on to his job. And Kitty recorded just to save his job. Even though she did not like the song.
2: Even and although it became a little bit. Oh,
0: it was, it was number four in the charts.
2: Yeah.
0: It was number four in the charts. But that that's an inside scoop on. Chapel in the Moonlight. And she
2: still didn't like the hit. Nope.
0: Nope.
2: Oh my God. Yeah. Hey, this yeah. one gal, when she passed away, she had written what she wanted played at her memorial. Yeah. And she said, "I want Ron to play my favorite song, Chapel in the Moonlight."
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, Dean Martin had a big hit on it too.
2: Yeah, she wanted. She liked the kitty. Kiddie- <laughs>
0: <laughs> I will. I will send an email. with Kitty know. Yeah. Oh. Is she still
2: alive? Yes. I'm sorry, I didn't
0: know. I don't. Yeah, no, no. most people don't know. I mean, in fact, um, Kitty's been reported dead twice on national TV.
2: Oh, my gosh.
0: And there's a great story how that happened. Ah.
2: Uh. Um,
0: back in 1977, Kitty had several homes and lived in the New York area. And so I think Kitty was in the back. Ranking flowers. She likes fresh flowers. And her husband, Bud, was in the front part of the house and the phone rang. And the phone said, Bud, yeah? how Kitty doing? Well, she's just fine. We're well, Kitty. Well, she's in the back decorating flowers. Bud, yeah? Turn on the TV set. They are announcing your wife's death. And so they did. And it was na- it was national TV, and they had to report. They had the, they 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 called the TV networks and told them that he is not dead. They couldn't believe it. So Kitty got on the phone and they started answering questions about her life. And finally, the reporter said,
1: kill the story."
0: <laughs> Where it from. This was and this is the story behind the story. Yeah. It's, it comes from Florida.
1: Uh-oh. Yeah. What happened? not known for
2: good things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what happened?
2: Hey, did you, um, Patricia, I received your CDs and I love them and, and uh, and stuff. Uh, Gracie Allen and George Burns and Sam Spade.
1: Oh, cool. I'm going to tell you in a minute how much I am enjoying yours when Walden finishes his story, and then we have to go back to Ron's music. Go, Walden. All right. Help me understand this.
0: Help me understand, and and, and it's going to take a little while because there's multi-parts to this. All right. What happened, there was a gal in Florida claimed that she was kitty cow.
3: Oh.
0: And what she was doing... She was going around local gigs in Florida saying she was Kitty Cowan and performing and getting paid. Oh boy. She was taking record albums. She looked similar. She knew all about Kitty. She knew what high school she was from. She knew the name of her husband, her kid.
1: Isn't that scary? Yeah.
0: And so when she got sick with cancer, she checked into the hospital under her real name. But told all the doctors and nurses that her her really true name was Kitty Callum.
1: Oh my God. And
0: so the radio station used to play songs, they sent flowers. Well, uh, so when she passed away, that's the first time they announced it was Kitty's death. Okay. 2020, then, three years later, a woman in Chicago, Claims she was Kitty Cowan. This whole routine happened again. 2020, the TV special decided to do a special on it and they interviewed, and the gal from Chicago would not, would not, did not deny, she would not say that she was lying. So on the 2020 special, they went to Kitty House to have her say she was Kitty Cowan, tell the whole life story. And even though this gal from Chicago, we said, and she checked into the hospital and everything
3: uh-huh.
0: and got out. And so they were putting together this documentary, and they told Kitty, well, Kitty, would you watch this? You, I think you enjoy it. So Kitty, in, that time she was a home in Mexico, the, the 2020 special, you know, the first story from Florida, the second story from Chicago.
3: Uh-huh.
0: And then they found another person who who claimed that was kitty cow. So they found three. And so they Kitty's deaf twice. And Kitty said, It's interesting, she got a chance to read her a whole bit once. There's a lot of mistakes in all bit, bit,
1: so <laughs> that's correct to me. Oh dear. <laughs> so that's why that's
0: why uh that's why uh, she's not surprised that people think she's dead.
1: Oh
0: boy. Yeah. That
1: is absolutely incredible. Why is she a lightning rod for this kind of stuff? I don't hear it about Burt Reynolds. I don't hear
3: it about Patty
0: Page. Why poor Kitty? Well, I, who knows? But it's, it's an interesting, uh, And Kitty said, it's somewhat flattering.
1: I was going to ask you, can, can you find some good things in this?
0: Like, yeah, she thought it was somewhat flattering.
3: And, that, um, and,
0: yeah, you'll hear her huh. tell the story here in a couple of weeks uh, when I pull out the Ray Bream interview, the time when Kitty and I met. Uh huh. And so she tells the, the story in great detail.
2: Oh interesting. Yeah. yeah. That that should be interesting.
0: Yeah, I'll be on a future Ray Breen in the next in the next few weeks and I'll run that.
2: How did you get so much of Ray Breen's interview? I guess what
0: a a junkie. I guess every time
2: uh I mean how did you become so good a good a friend that he shared that much with you? Well no,
0: I, I these I taped off the air. Oh, yeah, I taped these off and also the other guys who were the big are the other are the gasmen. So John and Lurie and myself are probably the two biggest Ray Breen guys and who taped tape most of those stuff off the air. And we, we know Ray, and I think he's flattered that here, 20 years later, 25, that uh, he gets a kick out of that we run him. Mm-hmm.
2: Just, he doesn't do any radio at all. Uh, he,
0: he's completely retired now.
2: Uh, uh, does he still fly?
0: Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't asked Ray about that. He just, he's really starting to slow down. So he, he might have given that up.
2: Uh Oh, yeah, yeah, well, because those are fabulous interviews, you know? They're, they're fun. Yeah, and the band, did you, did you see Colin in these shows or, you know?
0: Yeah, that's how I met Kitty Cowan. I was just a caller, I wanted to call and ask what she did on radio. And she and her husband for years were looking for the radio stuff. Oh, yeah. And they took me off the air, and we just bonded very close. And she said, I'm adopting you, and that's been it. Oh, and her
2: uh, it. her best
0: friend is Nancy Sinatra Sr.
2: Oh. And so that's
0: how I got hooked up doing the whole thing for the Sinatra family.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah,
0: so it, it, it radio's been a very interesting part of my whole life.
2: Yeah, you you had some exciting Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. there's no doubt about it.
2: Yeah, well, that's great. Well, I, I just thought I'd let you guys know that um, <clears throat> it was nice um to hear the interview and and Patricia, thank you so much for your generosity and stuff. Well,
1: I had a great time, but I need you for one minute to at least to stay on the phone and talk a little bit about your music for everybody out there who is listening. Ron sent me. Um, a private CD with his piano music on it, and it is absolutely stunning. I mean, it just blew me away. I took it out of the mailbox. I took it home. I put it in, and I listened to it, and I didn't stop. It is just the most magnificent
2: piano. When I say Walden, well, like I got it. I need so I'm gonna have to have
0: his. Well, I can give you. I can give it to you over the air if you want to. Oh, I didn't know
2: what you wanted. To... No, no,
0: I don't mind. It's uh.
2: Well, wait, wait, hang on, let me get... Okay. You know, take it down now. No problem. I definitely will send you. I appreciate it, and we'll You, pass. Be, you bring a lot of joy to all of us when we listen to your... Um, it, it may be many of you, and you must love film again, all year.
0: Yeah, I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay, all right. Your <laughs> so There
0: you go. First name is Walden. It's spelled W-A-L-D-E-N. Uh-huh. Okay. Last name is Hughes. H-U-G-H-E-S.
2: Okay, I got that. I add.
0: Address is 25252727. Two 27. that's D-U-K-E. that's
2: D-U-K-E. Uh huh, Place. Place, okay.
0: I'm in Costa Mesa, that's C-O-S-T-A.
2: Costa Mesa. M-E-S-A. Uh huh. California. California.
0: 92626.
2: 92626?
0: Yep. And anybody forgets that, it's on the website, so you can always click on my name and my address will appear in the DJ. Six
2: two six. That's a nice area.
0: It's nice. That it's, it's simple to remember. I
2: definitely will put in a thing in the middle on Monday for you. Thank you, Ron. Oh, you you, you bring lot of happiness to people like us. so Oh,
0: uh, well, hey, I'm glad I, I got a collection that we can share. That's the beautiful part about this. None of us really own it. We all just share it.
2: Yeah, so you, you have all the Fibber and Molly shows on, I mean, cassettes?
0: Yep. I have uh, over 250 cassettes of Fibber McGee and Molly, and that doesn't count the CDs. There are, I think, technically they think about 900 Fibber McGee and Molly shows survive. If you count the 15-minute versions and the... Three minute versions and
2: yeah, that I would, I was interesting. Where the uh, the guy uh, cook, uh, he wrote for Virgin McGee and Molly, in the in the fifth after nineteen fifty nine or yeah. somewhere around there. Or, right. When those were like what fifteen minute shows or something or those
0: were five minute shows. At
2: five minute shows. Yeah. My gosh, you know, I, I didn't know that. Um,
0: you want to mark this on your calendar. Uh, Patricia and I are going to be hosting a February McGee, and Molly special on Friday, the April the 16th, because February McGee, and Molly returned to 75 that day. And so we're going to start several hours before Frank comes on. And so Patricia and I will hopefully will have some interview some of the uh, cast members of the show. And we'll play Fibber, McGee, and Molly throughout oh, the show. Oh,
2: who's still alive, you think, from like this? Well,
0: there are the ones that are alive, Sherry Mitchell. Who played Alice? She was. Huh. Shirley Mitchell played Alice, you know, the room, the border. Yeah. During the Second War.
2: How, how old do you think Shirley Mitchell must be now,
0: though? Uh, Shirley is
2: 89. Oh my gosh. And, she's and she still
0: performs. She's best known for being Lila Ransom on The Great Girls I love it. You
2: know, I never heard anybody do a Southern accent as good as she does. I know.
0: And she's from Ohio. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and she said <laughs> she,
2: and I heard her do a regular of talking she sure knows how to put that southern thing
0: on oh, yeah and she said they asked her one time no I never went to the south until I came up with the character and they, and she said until I didn't do the character I finally met some people from the south who talked like that and who acted like that
2: you know so Shirley Mitchell is still alive Shirley
0: Mitchell still alive now Glory McMillan who's best known playing Harriet and R. Miss Brooks. She was a, she played two roles. She played a young next-door neighbor friend in the 52. she's still alive. <laughs> yes, and she also was a niece of Firmagee and Molly right. in uh, the 15-minute shows. And then uh, the character after Robert Easton was a next-door neighbor on the 15-minute shows. Those are the three, now we have, bit players who who did, you know, one shot, two shots. But those are, the, I would say, the three main cast members.
2: Um, uh, I'm actually going to wait to hear how Shirley was. Yeah they did an interview with Janet Waldo, not I remember. and she still sounds pretty decent.
0: She sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> she sounds great. And, uh, I don't know, Patricia and I would definitely want to have Shirley on that day. And who knows? Maybe we'll have her. A... Okay, Shirley does so much radio, maybe, maybe we ought to get to do a separate interview. We'll... We'll figure
2: that out. Yeah, uh, well, I hope when I'm 89, I still sound uh, like
0: you know. Uh, like Shirley, yeah, yeah, and she still performs at the conventions. She
2: does, yes. Uh-huh. Well, it's been nice talking to the two of you, and I want you guys to know that um, it's fun listening to you two banter back and forth, and stories you gotta tell. Hopefully, everything is true.
0: Hopefully, if my say, yeah. Or if we make it up.
2: Yeah. Well if you do make it up, you do you do some good making up. <laughs> we do well. And also I, I give um, Patricia Patricia because in Florida we're you're five hours ahead of Hawaii and most people would be crashing around this time, they're so tired, but not you. Let's see, it's ten after it's always ten after eight in Hawaii. Well, after one here. I know, I know, you're five oh my gosh, and and you still sound like you're still wide awake.
1: That's because I am.
2: <laughs> you probably might get up around 12 noon at lunch or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. And Warren, you too, I mean, you're, you're it's 10 after 10. And...
1: Yeah,
0: I'm definitely a night person.
1: And I am too. Yeah. yeah. We just have to cultivate this attitude in the rest of the world, Ron. Everybody should stay up late.
2: <laughs> anyway, well, I'll, I'll I'll put the thing in the mail, and you'll receive it sometime this next week. Thank you, Ron, for doing that. You take care, good buddy. All right, you too.
1: Um, before you go, do you like Zebra McGee and
2: Molly? There, well, if I had a if I had a grandma and grandpa, I guess I would have Zebra McGee and Molly as my grandma and grandpa. Ah,
1: that's sweet. I
2: would too. Yeah.
1: I thought of it in those terms. But, do you like the
2: show itself? Of course, they're, they're funny. Uh, I thought that, uh, what was the guy's name that played, um, their Trivial, Mayor, the trivia? Uh huh,
1: Gail Gordon.
2: Yeah, he's so cool. Yeah. Yes, he is, and I love it when he trips up with his words. Words get he all mumbled up and jumbled up and everything. He, he's so cool, Gil Gordon, in all Miss Brooks and in, uh, I he's a I mean,
1: he's
2: a great character actor, you know.
1: Ask ask me what else he did. Just ask me, Ron, just ask me.
2: Okay, you probably know a lot. I'll ask you. Now what else did Gail Gordon do in his in his in his life of, as a as a radio and T V star? Go ahead.
1: Gail Gordon was the first Flash Gordon. Really? That's what it says out there. I have, on the uh, Internet,
0: you have to believe it, right? Yeah. Here's another one. What? Wait. Gail Gordon's mom was a radio actress. Really? She was she was the landlord uh, on my friend Irma. Mrs. O'Reilly? Yes. Mom? That's Gail Gordon's mom.
2: Hey, what was her name? Gloria. Gloria. Gloria Gordon. That was his mom. Uh, Did she really have that Irish accent?
0: I have no idea. I think there's just great, I think there's great acting talent in that family.
2: Dick, why don't you call her up?
0: Why not?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, anybody. Ron, what I'm fishing around for is what show would you like? And I'd be happy to send them because I've got all these fabulous shows on my computer and they're no good unless I can share them.
2: Did you get rid of, did you get rid of what the thing of the Mounties? (laughs) Oh.
1: Oh, the Mounties show?
0: Yeah, she sent me a copy. That's how she got rid of it.
2: She got rid of the Mounties show or she sent you a copy?
0: She sent me a copy and I did listen to the Mounties.
2: Yeah. No, I love him Day, Molly. They're cool. They're cool. They're, they're great. So, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah, you can send me that. That's great. But, mm-hmm. hey, well, so, Walden, I expect you to call Gloria Gordon and see if she's got an Irish jacket.
0: Yeah, I'll see if I can arrange that. And
2: you let me right then, Patricia, nice talking with you. And, and surprise me and send me whatever you want to send me.
1: Hey, fun talking with you. Thanks for calling.
2: Well, I'm a I'm a pretty fun guy once you get to the we press
1: <laughs> I'm like a pretty fun guy. <laughs> Talk to you
2: lady guys.
1: All right, Ron. thanks so much.
0: Press please. Can you imagine, Patricia? What's she we you got a call from six thousand miles away. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't the, isn't technology something else?
1: Can you appreciate what time it is here? I know. I would I mean, you know how how intelligent I am with time.
0: I know. He's got the hours counted right down to the minutes. You know, scary thought. Anyway, it was There's a great Bill Gordon story. Um, uh, Gil Gordon' first comedy show really was Fibber McGee and Molly, and Jim Jordan was a little nervous hiring him because he basically just had a stage background. And uh, Jim, I think, was very pleased how it all came out, but he was just a little nervous when he first hired him to play that role back around 1940
1: or 41 or so. Uh, do I recall that Gail Gordon had a different character, a very minor character, before he became Mayor Latrivia?
0: Maybe. Uh, maybe so. I have to go back and think about it, but I, I think he, he might have. It, it sort of makes sense. I don't, think they would have, I don't think they would have created Mayor Latrivia to be a one-time shot.
1: Yeah. It, it's like Gildersleeve. Um, I guess it was it was Hal Peary, right? Brett, who right. who played Gildersleeve on Fibber McGee and Molly, but he had several different characters before he began to emerge as the next door neighbor Gildersleeve, and then of course Fibber uh, McGee's buddy.
3: Sure. He
1: played um, Doctor Gildersleeve, and eye doctor. Yep. And he got fed into so many bit parts that he was almost in and gone before you realized it was. Uh, it was Gildersleeve you were listening to.
0: And remember, uh, Gildersleeve had a different first name. He even went by Joyce Gildersleeve for a while.
1: I did not know that. Yeah? I did not know that. Okay, what's... It's Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. Right. What does the P stand for?
0: Well, I have... I, I, I know I'm going to be feeling wrong, but I still go... I still like the story that's really a lot more in Place, because that's where that with the street that Hal Perry lived on when he was in Chicago.
1: And I think it got turned around to another way. Uh-huh. His middle name, and he did announce it, Sibber uh, pointedly asked him one I'm going to have to start saving these shows that have all these wonderful bits of information, like Teeny's real name and Gildersleeve's real name. Um, they asked him what the P stands for, and he said Philharmonic. <laughs> That's what the P stands for, and there is a story that goes along with it, but I'll be dipped if I can remember what it is. His aunt was probably sitting in the first row, I don't know, <laughs> but um, that's, that's what his middle name is, Philharmonic. Harmonic. Well,
0: I don't know if most people know that Hal Perry was a, really came from San Francisco radio before he moved to Chicago, and he was uh, dubbed as the Boy Carousel. So he was very talented as a singer, as a young man in Chicago, oh. out of San Francisco. And that's probably part of the traits why uh, they allowed him to sing so much uh, on The Great Ghost Week. And uh, as Shirley have often said, every time Hal sang to her, he, she would just practically swoon, because he just loves his voice.
1: And Willard Waterman was a fine singer as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Very very true. In fact, uh, I don't know if most people would remember that he was um, part of the uh, Broadway show of uh, Maine uh, when that became a big hit, I think, with Lucille Ball in the 60s.
1: Billard Waterman? Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. I, as a matter of fact, I don't know anything about his background. I need to dig out my books here and start I, I, some reading about these people.
0: I met him once um, back at the first convention back in 1984. And we'll tell that story here in a bit. Hello, Carla. Hi, it's
4: Larry Gassman. Hello, Larry Gassman. How are you? Good, how are you?
1: Larry yes. Gassman, I'm happy to
4: meet you. I'm, I, I just tuned in, so I'm not sure who you are. Tell me who your name is. She's Mike. G- Tricia,
1: and Walden let me come out and play with him tonight. Oh,
4: that's nice.
1: Yeah, and I, I, he let me do a really wonderful interview with Tom Cook, a comedy writer.
4: Oh, good. Oh, yeah, Tom Cook, yeah, yeah. Oh, Tom. So for film Game, Molly, the Monitor Series, is that the one?
0: That's the one, that's the one. You arranged him to be at his first Spurback thing back in 1987. I yeah. Say. Patricia loved comedy, and one year you chose, you and John chose to do a, an all-comedy convention back in
4: 1987. I had, uh, yeah, I do remember that now. Yeah, yeah. So clear something up for me. Uh-oh. Did you say that Gloria Gordon was Mrs. Davis on Our Miss Brooks*? No. What
0: did uh, you say? I said... Uh, that was Glo- Jane Morgan. Right. Gloria, Gloria was on My Fan Irma.
4: That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I, I didn't think you had said that, but I thought to myself, I better double check. Well, I think
0: the reason why we, we, we switched from talking about Gloria McMillan, right. who was on our Brook, and then we got transferred into uh, uh, Gloria Bourne. So I think that's, you know...
4: Yeah, and, and, and people have made that mistake in the past. That's true. They've called Jane Morgan... Gloria Gordon. I've heard that a couple of times, not not from you, but from other people. So I thought I, I just ought to check. And I don't. And we never met Gloria Gordon because I think she was gone at the well, time.
0: Maybe you want to reminisce a little bit with Patricia. Uh, you met a lot of Fred McGee and Molly, Cat, and you did do a nice long interview, probably one of very few, with Gail Gordon about old time radio. And you did off the Sportsman Lodge. Reminisce about that today. did.
4: Uh, we have been trying to get him for a long time, and and he lived out in Borrego Springs near the end of his life, and. Uh, and we had been trying to get him, and he was never in town. And he said, well, he said, I've got to go into town. Now, why this is, I don't know. He said, I have to go into town to get an oil change on my car. And certainly there could have been places closer. And for uh, the audience, that's
0: probably near San Diego, and we're talking about the Sportsman Lodge, yeah. and three hours
3: away.
4: Hours away in Woodland uh, in Hills area? Yeah. Studio City. Studio City. So he said he knew where Sportsman's Lodge was because he had been to many Pacific County broadcasters lunches, And so... He said, Well, why don't we meet there? And and, uh, luckily, the people I was with said, Oh, well, we know where that is. And they drove us. Now, we were coming from Whittier at the time, which is another hour at least. And so, what we did was, (laughs) uh, we didn't check it with anybody. We had no idea where we were going to meet him. We just said, Yeah, we'll meet you at 1 o'clock. And so, we went in and we said, We're, we we went to the the people who were uh, at the front desk and said, We have an interview scheduled with Gail Gordon, and he's going to meet us here. could, could we use I forgot which the Starlight room is that correct?
0: Yeah, yeah that's right. That's one of the room. Yeah, Starlight room. Uh,
4: how come my wife says I can't remember something that happened 20 minutes ago but I remember the Starlight room <laughs> from how many years ago? 19 what was that? 19? 87 or so 88. She said you're an old person. Thank you very much. Just get just keep playing <laughs> with your computer. Oh, she said you're a typical old person. <laughs> okay. Hi Melinda. He said she said hi Melinda. Hi Walden. <laughs> Uh, I get paid extra for being an interpreter, right? That's true. Okay. Uh, so
0: anyway, they find interpreters are hard to find. Too. Yeah, they are.
4: Yeah, and I'm not even looking at her. No. Uh, so she said. Uh, so they said, no, go ahead and use the starlight room." And there was no nobody interrupted us except for one person, who happened to look through the windows because it was surrounded by a few windows, and they looked in and they saw Gal Gordon and they said, "I remember you from and now I can't remember the TV show." But other than that, for three almost three hours, we talked. Wow! About his career from from early on when he was because he was a dramatic actor first, and then he became a comedy actor later on, and then did a little bit of both. But I mean, he started in the '30s, yeah, early the very early '30s. He
0: was he was uh, Irene Ritz co-star for eight years when she was she had her long show for Welch's, uh Orange Welch. I forget I, the Irene Rich show. Yeah, and I, he was her. And that was his big big deal. That was his big break.
4: It was. It, it, yeah, we talked about, we talked about Framingue Molly, and we talked about, we even talked a, a lot about Fu Manchu, Shadow of Fu Manchu, yeah. he was in that, in 39.
0: I think most people may or may not know that Gale loved to work, even to his late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. He would go up to Canada for the summer and do nothing but dinner theaters.
4: He did dinner theater almost exclusively for the last several years of his life, and uh, I don't think he ever did another, inter- I'm trying to think if he did an interview. Well, he did a couple with John Denning. Right.
0: And I think, and the last one was you.
4: Was that the last one? I think
0: so. That's the only one I know of.
4: Yeah. yeah I mean, other people tried to get him. They tried to get him at Friends yeah. of Old Time Radio, and, yeah. he and he couldn't do it. Not that he didn't want to, yeah. but he was busy. Uh, and, and and so we were really fortunate. And he was very nice. It's funny because at first, here's a guy in his 80s, and we were at the time, in your 30s. 30s? Yeah, mid-30s. And, and, and it, it's like it was so often when we first met a radio person. It was like, God, how much of this am I going to have to explain to them? They didn't mean it in a condescending way, mm-hmm. but, you know, they're, they're 50 years older. So we would start asking questions, and within a few minutes, five to ten, you could noticeably feel them warming up because then they knew, these guys have an idea as to what they're talking about. I don't have to explain everything about radio. And it made it so much nicer and so much easier, because we could talk about people that we would either met and that he had known for years and years and years, and it made it very, very nice. And we had a terrific time. Did I send you that interview?
0: I don't have, I, I think I taped, I think I have it buried somewhere in my Spurback archive somewhere.
4: Yeah. I've got it. We're, we're going to get our stuff out, as you know, later on this year. That's and once right. we Once we can get that stuff out, a lot of that stuff, we'll start spreading it around. Because I'm, I'm amazed at how much how few things of ours are on the Internet.
0: Probably cause I'm the only one
4: that ever taped them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll spread it around yeah. so that people have a chance to listen to because that's what it's all about. Please
1: do. What a
0: joy
4: that is. That
0: was fun. Let, let me throw some other names out You're from the throw McGee Molly. That's Patricia's favorite show. So let me just throw some of the names, and you just tell stories,
4: right? Now, Patricia, did you listen to to shows? Oh, sure. Yeah. Are these shows that you, you collected?
1: Um, which shows are you talking about? Yes. Yes. All
4: these shows are shows you collected and put on your computer.
1: I I collect them and play them on the computer. Okay, cool. Yeah. Been through Fibber McGee and Molly at least twice. Some of them four times. They're they're just evergreens and priceless. And occasionally, you get a, a tablespoon. My gosh,
4: a bucketful of history. Mm-hmm especially around the time of World War II and, and especially uh, December 7th.
3: Uh-huh.
4: They I were interrupted, and the, several, of the, several of the shows were interrupted by news broadcasts.
1: Yes, um, and from that point, the themes in so many of the shows focused on recycling, mm-hmm. Red Cross collection, bond drives. Uh, they even went on On uh, not a circuit, but they went on location Mm -hmm. and did performances in exchange for bond contributions. Yeah, and of course, information pleased did the same.
4: Oh, they sure did. Yeah,
1: they were just
4: so. Yeah, information pleased. I like, And, and I liked the World War II broadcast because it, you know, when I was going through college, it was one thing for me to talk about something from a book, but it was so much needed to actually hear the shows because it gave me a lot more insight as to what really was going on.
1: Yes, it put it in the larger perspective. It wasn't a page in a book. It was part of a life and a lifestyle with real people. Hmm? Uh, I've been telling Walden for years, somebody, and I'm not... I am not smart enough yet and I am not good enough yet at this to do it myself, but somebody needs to package this together and walk into schools and say, We have a way to teach kids history, and it's going to be fun.
4: There are people who are doing that and have done that, but it's on a very small scale.
1: And we need to do it on a bigger scale. Yeah,
4: it's teachers who love the show. Some of the listeners to our show in the 80s and 90s were teachers, and they, they did get it to their kids, but it wasn't anything that was adopted by anybody on any kind of a large scale. What about Jim Jordan?
0: Uh, I know the time he attended Spurvac, you guys were just probably attended the dinner, but did you ever talk to Jim Jordan off the air?
4: Uh, um, uh, on the phone, yes. Uh-huh. I don't know if we ever, no, we never actually interviewed him, I don't think. I don't think so. I was a part of some of them, but I don't think I actually did anything with him. I met him several times at Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters and Nostalgia Nights, but we never did anything with him. Uh, he, he did do quite a few interviews. Yeah. Uh, but so I didn't know him terribly well. I knew of, of him through others.
0: How about the writer Phil Leslie?
4: Yeah, Phil Leslie. We talked to several times, uh, not on the radio show, but for Spurbeck. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was fun. He was he was he was very enjoyable. He used to talk about Don Quinn, especially, and Don Quinn was immensely brilliant. If you can package those two words in a sentence, I guess you could use them. Well, if you if you haven't, I just did. Uh, and I liked, I liked, uh, Don Quinn as much and maybe more in The Halls of Ivy, which I thought was just a brilliant show. And then to, to get Ronald Coleman and, and his wife, Benita, it was, it's one of my favorite radio shows. And partially it's because of what they did with it. Because in the audition show, they used Gail Gordon and they used, um,
0: and, and the best.
4: And the best, thank you. They were good. But they didn't bring the warmth. It didn't translate to me like it did with, with Ronald Coleman and Benita Hume.
0: You know, here's an interesting idea. The two successful shows Don Quinn had, Husband and Wife were important. Yes. And you could tell, I would bet a million dollars that Jimmy Ray and Jordan loved each other and Ronald Benito loved each other in their private life. I think it came over,
4: over the air. Yes, it did. And maybe that's why those shows worked so well.
0: Any idea on that, Patricia? Is that an interesting...
4: I agree
1: wholeheartedly. Yeah. On, on but t- she's nodding. <laughs> Pardon?
4: You're nodding.
1: Oh, yeah, right. I'm nodding, I'm nodding. You can't hear me nodding.
4: The phone a couple of times, so we have an idea as to what you're doing when you're nodding.
1: <laughs> Thank
4: you very much.
1: You're very welcome. It is something that I have noticed along the way, that as a couple, they they, they had magic together. There was something that connected with them that you couldn't describe, you couldn't see, you couldn't touch, but it was there. And, uh, you know, the enjoyment that they had back and forth. And the same thing happens with Ronald and Benita Coleman, where you can tell by the way they deliver their lines, it is a personal connection. They're not reading a script. They're connecting with the other person. And it sounds like a subtle difference, but it isn't so subtle at all. And I think you're absolutely on target.
4: And it didn't just happen with the Halls of Ivy. It happened even when they did all those Benny shows.
1: That's exactly right. And that is the, uh, that is the, the benchmark, if you will, when they can translate that kind of an attitude and a feeling mm-hmm. and take it with them, translate it into another setting, and just take it with them, you know it's real.
4: Yeah, it really is
1: not something you can put on in in different venues and in different circumstances. And they they had it. I think Jim and Marion had it, too. Yeah,
4: I do, too. I do, too.
0: What about Kelly Mitchell? You've worked with her so much doing interviews and uh, conventions and things. Any thought? She's definitely a pro's pro. You, you agree about but that? Yeah, she is. You know?
4: She is. She, she did a few, even with us, and I think a couple of reps when she wasn't feeling well and she yeah. was sick.
0: Oh, I remember. I think one year in Colorado, she didn't have any voice at
4: all. No, she didn't. She she came in, she flew in, uh, went to bed, and um, I I don't know whether it was tea that she drank. I can't remember. Uh, but she went. We didn't see her. I saw her briefly, and then she just stayed in her room for all all day, uh, and then came in to do the rehearsal, and and just read her lines. She didn't do much with the lines. Just read them. But she was, uh, she was very good during the actual on-air performance because she had waited and waited and her voice wasn't back totally, but it was well enough for her to do the job. And, uh, and you know, then of course people talked about the fact that she had been sick and she had done such a great job to come back. But she said, well, you know, it's, that's the way it was back then. Even if you were sick, you still worked as much as you could. And she did. She did a terrific job. I can't remember the name of the show now that she was doing them, but, but it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun to watch.
1: Frank Brzee has said similar things at different times uh, when I've asked, well, how do you do a last-minute substitution? He said, we didn't. You were there. That's what you were. It didn't make any difference what kind of condition you were in. You were there.
4: The time substitutions happened really was when people were, you know, they took a little longer to actually get back from huh? from a watering hole, and then they would come back in, and they would, weren't able to work, and then you had to physically substitute for them, but You know, generally, even if they were sick, if they were sober, they were working. Right. Right. And
1: that, that was, you know, nobody called in sick. No. You don't call in sick at a radio show. And everybody was excited. No crying
4: in baseball. There's, (laughs) there's no getting sick doing a radio show.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. True. And that was the emphasis. I mean, obviously people did. I remember a show, uh, one of the Boston Blackie shows. Blackie had no voice, he had laryngitis, so they pretended to call him, that he was unavailable, but Patsy and the entire group would call him periodically during the show, and at different points he would actually come on with a whisper, if I'm remembering correctly.
4: Do you remember which one it is? Because I think I've got just about all of them.
1: I don't. uh, I just said to Walden before you called that when I come across these shows, I need to pull them out and at least keep a list of the unusual things that go out. And I'm starting, I'm trying to find the show, the Fibber McGee and Molly show with Harlow Wilcox, who comes in in the middle for his commercial and, of course, interrupts Fibber, which is pretty much the routine, and he starts talking, and he made some kind of a comment just offhanded, and you know he ad-libbed it. There was no way this thing was in the script, and it it kind of danced on the edge of red. It was like pink, and if he had part of if he had that in the script, the censors would have sent him to his room. I mean, it, really, it was just. And I don't know which show it is, so I'm happily listening for the third time to my. <laughs> entire Wow. I mean, I just love this show so much, and, and the whole world knows it. I, it's just a pleasure for me to listen to them over and over, because I get something new and different each time mm-hmm. I do them. So I'm listening for that one. It really is a priceless, and it's not even a flub. It, he just barged in with this comment that was apropos for the situation.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Appropriate for radio.
1: And so I have to find I it. make
4: little comments in, in the, uh, especially if they're on the computer, I'll, I'll make little notes actually in the file name uh, so that when I'm wandering through there looking at stuff, you know, it's there
1: yep. and, uh, in the show. I have started doing that um, but not often enough where I'll open up iTunes and I have a set of fibers in there and I'll see one that has a very long title and when I check the title it's because I put a note in there. So it's something that would automatically catch my eye, but I have not been good about that at all. And uh, the one I saved was from a fairly recent one when I was sensitive enough to pick up an unusual line that Molly used, and you can help me what it what it means. I think I know what it means. It's from October thirteenth, 1942, and the title was Changing Furnace to Coal. And Fibber wanted to know what the weather forecast would be for the next day. And Molly, I, I wrote this down word for word. Molly replied, the paper doesn't tell what the weather's going to be in wartime. It just tells what the weather was yesterday. And I'm assuming that it's because of military precautions that successful missions depended on favorable weather conditions. Correct. Right. And if the weather conditions were broadcast ahead of time. What it was going to be the following day, it would give information, ostensibly anyway, uh, to to the enemy
4: combatant. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's exactly yeah. what they did that that way.
1: I, I suspected that that was the case. It in today's arena with the sophisticated weather predictions and. Uh, the weather information that we get 24 hours a day, it caught me up short because it is such a simple measure and it runs counter to what I and most of us take for granted, that we have this 24-hour flow of information that everybody knows about.
4: And I guess it really wouldn't matter today, would it, because it's so easily accessible on the Internet. I mean, knowing what the weather is going to be like, is a, it's a matter of course you know what it is, so you deal with it. Yeah. Okay. Hey.
1: But the little widget on my computer, and I know what it's exactly. for six days. So it's not something that is of uh, secrecy is pointless. You can walk around with your secret cloud, but everybody else knows you have it because everybody gets weather reports now. But clearly, they did not during the war, and that was one part of the war I did not know about. I have no idea that that was. Something that they just incorporated in everyday life. Nobody talked about the weather tomorrow.
4: But they really didn't talk about that much on the shows. W- you had to have lived the life in order to know. Because I don't think, uh, I don't remember hearing too many mentions of that during World War II, listening to the old radio shows, you know, now. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't think so. So you had to have actually lived that life or have been lucky enough to come across a mention like you did.
1: Exactly, and I think they they lived life obviously in a way that everybody knew and everybody will always know and there are some things that they won't even care about so it was it was just a commonplace thing that they didn't talk about everyday things and we have limited opportunity to know what went on in a household on a on a on, normal neighborhood street those aren't the kinds of historical accounts that we get and so i rely on something like the old time radio shows to fill in some of the blanks for me and this was apparently just second nature because it was an offhand comment like don't you remember you i mean it wasn't in there as an education it wasn't in there as a line to teach people something new it was a line that simply reflected Topical.
4: Yeah, it was just a throwaway comic. Actually, it was it was a throwaway comment.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Thank you. Those are the correct words. It just got tossed in there because it happened to fit the script, not because it was anything that needed to be in there. Huh? So I'm getting really sensitive to these things. I just good for you. Sensitive to naming them you know, and remembering where I found them.
2: hmm Good for you.
1: Talk
0: about Ray Bream a little bit. Uh, we had a caller who was asking about it, and tomorrow night, uh, Larry, I'm going to run the uh, Ray Bream interview that you, you, John, and uh, brought over Robert Taylor. Oh. And the uh, Fred Allen. The Fred Allen one.
4: Yeah. yeah I was going to say, I know I didn't talk to the actor.
0: <laughs> but I'm going to play that tomorrow
4: night. I had forgotten about us doing that one with Ray Bream. Yeah.
0: Can you talk about the first time you even went over to Ray Studios, or what, what do you remember about, cause like you guys almost were doing one or two shows a
4: year. For- I'm trying to remember which one was first. Um I mean, I guess we met him through Pacific Finder Broadcasters.
0: Maybe George Balser in the 88, that might have been the Maybe, first
4: Maybe, uh, well I know, I know we met him at, at luncheon, so we, we knew him. Mm-hmm. And we talked from time to time, and we saw him every, every month. And I guess, um I can't remember when he first. Well,
0: I think you put him on the big band panel in '86.
4: That would have was okay, because I I figured probably that we'd put him that he'd come to Spurback at some point.
0: Yeah, that's when I think
4: it was. And so, so obviously he got the Spurback newsletter and he said, "Hey, uh, would you like to bring some of these people in when you bring them in for the Spurredback convention, like on a Friday night?" And of course, we were foolish enough to say, "Sure." Not actually, it was Thursday nights in some cases. Not, uh, and I don't think I was working at the time. God, if I had been, I'd have been dead the next day. (laughs) Because his show went from 12 a.m. to often 2 and 3 in the morning. And then we had to get up the next morning, I think, for Spurredback. and we were up by 7 or 8, but we didn't get home until 4. So, you know, you get maybe four hours of sleep. And I think we were generally at the hotel when we went to do his show, pretty sure. Because we had to get up and start working for the SpiritVac Convention. But the first one, I think you're right, might have been George Balder. But he, oftentimes he would ask us to bring in people that we didn't have access to generally out here. Uh, like Arthur Anderson, who lived in New York, and High Brown, who will be 100 years old, I think, next July. Yeah, absolutely. And he was in New York, still is. Uh, well... I think, I can't remember where Jim Hawthorne was living when we brought him in. Maybe Colorado. Maybe so, yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to, I don't remember, I'm they're probably missing a few other people because we did have others, like Robert Taylor, who was, uh, I think in Boston. Right. At the time, and had written a book on Fred Allen. Right. And there probably were a few more that I'm not remembering. But yeah, we were lucky for a space of four or five, six years, uh, we, we did his show and we did, uh, uh, we helped with Larry King's show. We were on, a, a, you know, slightly in Jim Bohannon's show, so we were pretty fortunate.
1: Who has interviews of Fred Allen?
0: Texan Jinx might be, and there's one with. Uh, there was a
4: there was a show called Conversation. Yes. On old time radio, and the conversation they did interview Fred Allen, I think. Um,
0: Kristen, Kristen, Kristen did did. It. It, yeah.
4: Um, and I'm trying to remember if there were any others.
0: We were texting Jinx one hour about his book.
4: Right. Treadmill to Oblivion, I think, was right. that one, wasn't it? Right. That, those might be the only ones, as far as I know.
0: I, last night, just for fun, I've been, um, I'm going to interview Patrice Munzel next Thursday. Oh, yeah. And thank, Patricia helped me do some research, and I was looking at her TV credits, and I know she did What's My Line. Mm-hmm. And on YouTube, I've been getting a kick out of going to YouTube and looking at the guest stars, and, you know, the mystery guest challengers. And I saw how Patrice did hers. And then and then the night I said, well, then I got uh, on Wikipedia. They list every possible mystery guest they ever had. So I've been, last night, I've been thumbing through it, and I noticed Fred Allen was a mystery guest. So I pulled that up on YouTube. And there was a time that he was in the hospital and just got out. And so they had a, you know, Robert Q. Lewis pink sitting and they had Fred talking some glass bottle to try to disguise his voice. (laughs) And somehow Robert Q. Lewis figured out, he said, I know his and I want to thank him for allowing me to be on the show for the last couple of weeks. And that's out of choice. And I always got to kick out how. Uh, Fred Allen to try to, you know, disguise himself.
1: Fred Allen had such a distinctive voice, I don't think sticking it in a bottle would have worked. It <laughs> would have made it worse. Yeah. I'll have to
4: do that. I had not thought about that. Yeah,
0: it's been a great. I mean, I see Bob Hall, the one I love, is Burns and Allen. They're sitting there knocking, and, and John Daly said, Well, um, yeah, I think it's time for you to uh, start using your voice rather than knocking at the table. And uh, Gracie pops up, Well, get be quiet, George. And that, you know, they discovered. And I love, I just love these things on YouTube. Yeah, I do, too. You know, it's just the what's my line. So I had an opportunity to see how Patrice did hers, and it was a French accent that she pulled off. Uh
4: Uh Oh, I'll go look at that tomorrow. Okay, I
0: think she did what's my line also. Well, the the way I figured it out was just a mystery channel. Maybe she was a panelist, too.
1: I don't know. Um, yeah, well, probably a panelist. I mean, you can't be a mystery guest on... Well, I guess you could. Uh, did they have mystery guests on um, And What's My Line?
0: Yeah.
4: Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. That's a
0: possibility. That's what. that's why I pulled it up on YouTube. I pulled up Patrice Munzell, What's My Line, and she was a mystery guest. Mm. So I'm going to ask her, how did they determine, and what was the process, and did they, they, they let her be creative to try to disguise her voice? It's
1: my... Crane did one of those right turns and and was thinking, I've got a secret, and was asking about what's my line. I apologize.
0: I think you're right. She was on i got a secret, too, Patricia. It was in your notes.
4: I wonder if she's still singing. Oh, that.
0: She is uh, is, uh, extremely nice. When I talk to her on the phone, she's so excited to sit down and talk about radio. And, you know, probably because it's not a normal topic. Everybody wants to talk to her about opera. Yeah,
4: did she do the railroad
0: hours? <laughs> yes, she did. I, Patricia dug at least three or four railroad hours. Yeah. And uh, I didn't I didn't realize this until I reread my bio tonight, that she came from the state of Washington. Okay. And her folks believed enough in her ability that they just went ahead and packed up, packed up their bags and moved to New York. Oh,
4: what about the voice of Firestone?
0: Yes, I was on there, too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she got her big break on the Metropolitan Audition of the Year, and she won a $1,000 prize. Oh, a lot of money back Yeah, on. a lot of money.
4: Yeah.
0: But anyway, we're going to sit down and talk about it. Because the reason why, first time I ever heard, that the time you played, uh, on the first time you did the uh, your All Night Christmas special, you played a Paul Whiteman ABC Christmas party. Oh, okay. And that's what she, that's the first, she was on there, and that's, that was the first time I've ever been exposed to her, so I've always... I always liked that show, so I've already. That's when I found out he was still around. I figured, hey, well, that's Warren for you. He'll go after the old time radio guest. That's a little unusual.
4: Mm mm-hmm. Good for you. Yeah. That's, that's great. <laughs> Good for you.
1: Yeah. Dynamite. It's it really is, it's going to be. It's, I was just so surprised when I was going through the information at the range of her performances from. Opera to comedy to variety, she she just covered all of the bases, which I think is quite remarkable. When you start out as an opera singer, and a well recognized opera singer, I think it it should be obviously it wasn't for her as far as I know, it should be difficult to make transitions into other media. And, oh yeah, you're right. And she slid right into it. Hmm? loved the comedy. So I had some surprises when I went ferreting around for some information. It was just great. I mean, Walden, you keep my assignments coming, please,
0: because the uh, station is coming from. Oh, I know. It, it's, a, it's a hoot. It's a hoot.
1: It is wonderful. But one of you, please, if you have the interview with Fred Allen, where he's not on a show, not reading a script, he speaks extemporaneously uh, and ad Please, if
0: you have it, one of you, play it. I I, I, I had a tape of uh, Conversation one time, I, I and mean, I've been looking for that one. I'll uh, have
4: to look and see.
0: Clifton okay. Fadiman, uh, and probably the time when Fred was coming out to a book. Clifton, it, I think people may or may not have forgotten that for many years. She was the book reviewer, was it for the New York Times?
1: Huh? New York Times.
0: Yeah, hmm. and that must have started... Well, I think it started way before he started Information police back in the 30s, because he used to do that on local radio in New York. Right. And that's when Golden Paul decided to pull him in for Information Please. But uh-huh. I think he kept some forms of shows like that forever. And this I think he mentioned this was the last sort of conversation Fred had before his passing. Yeah.
4: hmm uh-huh. Well, I, I'm going to leave you. All righty. I'll let other people talk, because I've been on... Uh... Way too long.
1: No, no, no. You've been wonderful, uh, and you got you let me get in my request. Please find Fred Allen and play him for me,
4: it was, uh, I think I have it somewhere. I'll have to look and see.
1: I am not particularly fond of the and Allen's Alley and the Fred Allen Show. I kind of get lost in the scripting. It, it's it's not spontaneous. It's artificial. But when he was by himself, as as for example, a guest on Information, Please, he has me on the floor. Yeah. I am. very funny. i just laughing out loud, and he is so sharp, or he was so sharp. He could pick up on anything mm-hmm. and, and make the world laugh.
4: Yeah, yeah you absolutely right.
1: So that's the interview I want to hear.
4: Oh, I think I may have it. I'll look and see if I do. Bless you. Thank you. Bless you. I'm happy <laughs>
1: to have met you.
4: Thank you, Ella. Nice to meet you, too. And I'm glad you're here keeping Walden
1: semi-honest. That's right. I'm so I'm happy that he let me come out and play tonight.
0: Sure. Cool. And Patricia will be back with me in two weeks, everybody, when we have Joe Franklin. We're going to do a live interview with Joe. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Good. He's he's, he's fun. He is fun. Walden
1: Walden says, I can join him because I speak New York.
0: He's from New York. You know, me, Uh being a California boy, I don't know. I mean, I've got, thank goodness, some interviews with Joe, but I figured Patricia grew up Hearing all those guy, he would have
4: a better feeling. Oh sure, up. yeah. Mhm. Yeah, and she can speak from from memory, rather you can you can speak from just hearing the recording. That's true. Yeah.
0: All right, Larry, we'll let you go.
4: All right. And thanks for calling in. You're welcome. We'll talk later. All right, now. Bye bye. Thanks,
1: Larry. Have a great
4: weekend. Thank you very much. You too.
0: And, and there's the legendary Larry Gassman, who is uh, uh, definitely a hallmark. Used to be on Yesterday USA for sixteen years, and uh, love always when he calls in. Keep me honest.
3: That was great.
1: I have never met or talked with Larry before. Yeah. So, another treat. Baldwin.
0: you're just packing in the treats. Oh, that's fun. We can give out the number uh, before we uh, play our, another show here. If you, anybody want to give a, a call here? You can. It's 714 545 I think you can give out the number we've got two phone calls. I wonder why thats four five four five. And anybody want to guess what the first show is going to be? <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. It's from 1952. You know, everybody knows how much I start Christmas early before anybody and I always finish it late because I always have a series of uh, shows that I love to play and I want to play them before, you know, I'll just play them during the end of the time. But, yes, it will be A Fever of McGee and Molly from 1952.
1: Christmas first? Huh?
0: Which one? This is it the one where they decide to decorate the house for Dr. Gamble.
1: Oh, that's cute. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I pulled out the, uh, the, the Radio Spirit put out a nice box set and the four shows, and a little box set I want to play before I put put that one away. away.
1: Super. But,
0: I haven't heard that one in a very long time. Yeah. I don't know how it escaped me, but, um, it'll be fun. Pep Milk. I think with Pep Milk or, uh, Reynolds Aluminum, no, probably Reynolds Aluminum, um, uh, and i tell you, I've talked to a lot of collectors who, when they grew up with it, they only wanted to collect it or they remember it was the Jackson Wax. They didn't really ever want to spill into the 50s.
1: And they did some fun
0: shows with the Pep Milk and the Aluminum Company. I mean, I'm surprised how many people sort of say February McGee and Molly ended in the 1950s, but really they had another 10-year run after that.
1: I understand. We've talked a little bit about this at one time, about... I guess Frank. Frank says the show stopped when Johnson Wax stopped. And that just baffled me because there are so many wonderful shows that run right through the early 50s, right up almost until the middle 50s. And they are really creative. They're just super shows with wonderful material in them and great writing. And as you say, so many people say, mm mm. Sorry, Johnson Wax not there?
0: The program isn't either. I was gonna mention when Ron called from Hawaii, he said, an interesting favorite McGee and Molly tie. The only interview we have was Don Quinn.
3: Uh-huh.
0: It's the time he was vacationing in Hawaii in nineteen fifty one. For heaven's sakes, how did that happen? I so he was and he went in and did a local interview for a local radio station, the NBC affiliate in Hawaii. And that's the only interview we have of Don Quinn for a half hour.
1: And it was casual. Harry is out of his element, yep. in the, the great entertainment areas yep. of the country. yep, and he goes on vacation and gets the
0: interview. right Wow yeah, so that that's sort of a little tap to the hat to Hawaii. Thank you guys for recording that, even though you might not have thought of that, uh, but you you helped out in filming Mi Maui history. We'll put it that way.
1: Another piece of history that was unwittingly passed on. Or somebody recognized the value, not likely, but it was probably for entertainment, but maybe somebody did indeed recognize the value of having the words of such a
3: wonderful person.
0: That's part of the reason why i talking to Frank, and I think his archive is so fabulous. One, For example, folks, he has 600 or so episodes of The Tonight Show. And I don't know if most people know that from the late fifties throughout most of the sixty the tonight show does not survive. And Frank had the audio recording that they would keep the monologue and keep the interviews and they would put these on the back side of the golden days of radio. So when when the armed forces sent out the show, they would put Frank's show on one side and put the, the tonight show on the back side. So that And Frank and I were talking about cause, uh uh next Friday night when we're going to salute George Byrne, we're going to pull out some of the Tonight Show stuff.
1: So when he collected his own shows right. as memorabilia, he automatically collected the Johnny Carson shows. Correct. Because they are inseparable. Correct. They are married. Right. And they will never be parted. That's right. There is no divorce in There is
0: no divorce.
1: No divorce in a record
0: that's right
1: <laughs> you're stuck one <laughs> thing the other is stuck no divorce, and I' do it Yeah. isn't that interesting yeah. so it it's actually by default that he wound up with, with this wonderful collection correct
0: correct and uh so um that's part of the reason why I think when you occasionally him put put a tonight show clip in there because he's the only one that got it
1: I love it yeah. Isn't it wonderful when somebody can say, I got it, I got it! And not in a mean way with another person who perhaps wanted it and might be jealous even, but just to, just to get joy, honest to goodness, pure joy out of having something or having something enrich your life, not the kind I've got it and you don't, but I've got it and isn't this wonderful?
2: I want
0: to make a brief part, sort of something what Patricia and I worked on. Next Saturday, everybody, January the 23rd, um, on WTBS and WTNT at 5 o'clock West Coast, 8 o'clock Eastern, they are doing the Lifetime Achievement Award for Betty White. And we came up with the earliest possible acting performance she did on radio, which was a great grocery show. If it makes it through the cut, it will be part of the special. And I think the, uh, product, the just ecstatic that we were able to dig something up that they haven't told her fan club. I don't think they, Betty White even knows that even exists. That they're going to surprise everybody a week from tonight.
1: No, um, Kathy said. When I, this, this for anybody who's listening is a person I do not know, but she's in California and she was working on this, and she said that Betty White knows something is happening but has no idea <laughs> that it is a major tribute and it will be her evening period.
0: Uh, so that's, so if you want to see it, it's going to be a broadcast. I'll run tape, you tape. Know, I want to see if my clip made it.
5: Hello,
0: caller.
5: Hello, Walden. Hello, Patricia. Hi, Jim. How are you? Well, I'm, that was a very interesting interview tonight. Mr. Uh, Mr. Cook had a lot of interesting... Recollections. It was certainly interesting to hear about, you know, his work with Bob and Ray and with Fibber McGee and Molly. Uh
1: huh. I loved it.
5: And it was. I was thinking about their staying power. And I, as I was listening tonight, and I was talking about Fibber McGee and Molly, I was thinking about the imagination aspects of that show is what made it go. And I, I used as an illustration the fact. That when it went on television, of course, two problems. They had a different cast on television, and it, it was not a it was not a video success at all. I think twenty six weeks it lasted, if I remember right. And I think one reason for that might have been because it was a different cast. It was, if I remember right, it was was in it a Kathy Lewis and Bob Sweeney. Correct. It played them on television. Yep. And the other thing is, I think. But the hall closet and all of that with the closet and the images we had—if you saw those images on television, it, it just would not have been as funny. I don't think. I don't know. I don't know if, if the Jordans had played it on television, if it would have gone over visually or not. I guess one can speculate about that.
1: Walden sent me a set of Fibber McGee and Molly movies for Christmas, and. On two of them, already, I have picked up the closet routine, and it it's almost disappointing to see it. It's full-blown. It's the best they could do with a closet and stuff tumbling out, but it is so different because it doesn't match what I have in my head. Right. And that happens with a good novel. It happens with good writing that allows the reader to play along the reader is allowed to shape people and looks and education and all these personal things, and then when reality strikes, it doesn't match.
5: Well, you know, my, I, I have generally I, I, I'm trying to think if I can ever remember a movie that I, in which I had read the book first and then seen, seen the movie. I'm trying to remember if I can ever think of a time where I was satisfied with the movie adaptation, and I don't think I can think of one time that I was actually, I mean, there were, there were a number that were good. Uh-huh. There were a number of mini series of books I read that were okay, but I don't remember any where I thought the uh, movie was better than the book. Now
1: that was when you went in reverse. You read the book and then went to the movies. Did you ever go to the movies and then read the book?
5: I'm trying to remember if I ever. I'm sure once or twice I did, but I but I can't. I, I I can't. I can't. They don't come to mind right now. I'm sure I probably did. How about yourself?
1: Occasionally, I am not a movie person. I w- I was asking you, and I think you answered my question anyway. If it was remarkable, if there was something that really stood out for you and disturbed you or was unpleasant.
0: I'll tell you uh, one example I have noticed. It's a thin man. I've read the book, but I like the way it's been portrayed. What I think probably William Powell and Murray gave a different feel than the way I read it in the book.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And I like the way the, the movie came over.
5: And do you like the radio version mm-hmm. with I do. Morgan and, and Les Damon? Yeah. Pretty much. I, I do.
0: Uh, the, the book was a different... A, a totally different feel. Yeah. And I guess just, just uh I, I just, I was throw that in the hopper.
5: Well I like I, I'll say I liked the Nero Wolf book that Rep Stout wrote. Mm-hmm. And most the the radio Nero Wolfs of course weren't based on the books at all, just the character. And the books you have this image of of, of Wolf sitting in his chair and you have the image of him going up to the plant room you know twice a day and following his routine and you, you get to know his routine in the book and th- they, they they tried on radio Sherlock Holmes it's interesting that uh, people have told me and I've never read a complete Sherlock Holmes novel yet people have told me that on radio and in the movies particularly with Nigel Bruce Watson is kind of if not dim-witted He's aided a lot by Holmes, and Holmes has to tell him to be quiet, and he's kind of bungles things. But in the books that Doyle wrote, Wallace was any—I mean, uh, Watson was anything but bumbling.
1: It's interesting on the recorded shows that with the different players, the different people who played Sherlock Holmes, the delivery and the attitude toward Watson changed. As you say, there were times when he was told, shut up, literally, the words, shut up, Watson. Quiet,
5: quiet, Holmes would say sometimes.
1: Sometimes he would say quiet. There was an entire group of shows that have shut up in them. <laughs> I was really surprised to hear that. And then you would move into an era where um, Basil Rathbone, for example, was, was sharp, uh, you know, occasionally uh, harsh, sharp. But never rude or insulting. He, he never took it today. It was always a frustration with the moment, not with the person. But with some of the others, it was the person. And, uh, so that, that was a whole different daily work. What came to mind as you were talking was Hercule Poirot, who was radio, book, and television. And, they did it beautifully. They they were they were true to the character. They lifted the character out of the books, um, put him on radio, and within the last what ten years, had um, David Pinchot, Am I saying his, his name correctly? Was the actor who behaved, looked like, moved is solved crimes. It was a perfect replication of what Agatha Christie put in the books. So that one was a marvelous success.
5: Well, I noticed that, for example, sometimes you have an audio or a visual image that is so strong that when you read a character, and I guess the best example I can think of there is, so strongly does one identify Raymond Burr now with Perry Mason. Uh So, when you read the Perry Mason books by Earl Stanley Gardner, if you read them on tape or something, you have this image of Raymond Burr that is so strong that it's almost, and this is not, I know, I realize there are two different mediums and two different things, but it's almost a letdown because you have this image of Raymond Burr Uh being Perry Mason.
1: Uh When you start messing around with people's brains and force them to see with another sense, it doesn't work a lot of times. It's, it's unusual when it works.
5: And of course, on radio, while he was never in book, John, Johnny Dollar is perhaps the best example of where, like, six, not counting the auditions, six actors played him during its 13 years on the air. Uh
3: huh.
5: But I think 99% of the people who collect Johnny Dollar or listen to it. All agree that actor number four, Bob Bailey, was the best in the role.
1: I have heard that over and over and over again. I've never heard anybody disagree with it.
5: I mean, uh, Charles Russell, the first to play him, it was just—it was kind of gimmicky. Where he would—he would get a uh, the bellboy would give him a tip, hey, a dollar, and Johnny would go naturally, and it was just kind of silly in the in the Russell shows. O'Brien, Edmund O'Brien and John Lon played him as kind of hard-boiled, but it was like other radio detectives you'd heard, Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, whatever. Bailey gave him a character all his own, and the two other actors, Robert Reddick and Mandel Kramer, Mandel Kramer played him with a little more humor than Bob Bailey did. And Reddick was kind of caught in between a rock and a hard place, because he played him for six months after Bob Bailey left, and how do you follow Bob Bailey? Huh? But Bailey had that toughness that was original. I mean, it wasn't. He didn't try to copy Edmund O'Brien, or but it was a role all his own.
0: Answer your question for my two experts. Hey, okay. who did the audition of Johnny Dollar?
5: Well, it's a man who you often play on Sunday night. Correct. He's uh, uh he um. He he can sing a little bit. He could sing a little bit, yes, and he uh, he had a baby face image that he tried to get rid of when he played He was tired of his baby face image. Right.
1: Who played Richard Diamond?
5: That's the man. Dick. Powell. Dick Powell. I Dick Powell. I
1: remember his name?
0: Yep, Dick Powell.
1: Yeah, Dick Powell, and he was the one who came instantly into my mind, but I can't get credit for it out uh, <laughs> loud. But
0: he did the uh, he did the audition for Johnny Dollar and decided. He passed on the role and did Richard Diamond, and I think it was better suited for
5: him. Yeah, I have to agree. Uh, Powell, and, of course, he also did Rogue's Gallery, yeah. which was another show Dick all yeah. did. Uh, and he was good, in, in, uh, he was good in, in Richard Diamond. It's interesting that when it went to TV, David Jansen played Richard Diamond, and it was a far more serious show. When David Jansen, of course, never sang or never really had humor. He just played him as straight, hard-boiled. Do
0: you know who his secretary was? Who was Richard Diamond's secretary? What, what person?
5: Well,
1: oh, um,
0: later became a major comedy hit in the 1970s on television. It had her own show. But in the 50s, she was Richard Diamond's secretary, on the TV version,
5: and then in the '60s, he played a supporting role on a very popular TV. Correct. On the TV shows, I'm I'm a cipher, nothing. Yeah, and it's Mary Tyler Moore, right? Uh, Dick Van Dyke, she yeah. was his wife. Yeah, and she had her own show in the '70s. It was very successful. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. But those you have these images, you know of these of these people, and one of my friends was telling me that he. Yeah, he, had, he was an OTR collector, and he used to list, listen to, uh, well, The Green Hills of Earth on either X-1 or Dimension X, I forget which. And then he read the original story, and he said it was totally, reading the story was just totally different.
3: Uh-huh.
5: And, uh, and, 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 I, and I don't know if he meant that for the positive or negative, I'll have to ask him, but he said it was totally different reading the story. Yes.
1: A good writer will show you what's happening, won't tell you in specific terms what's happening, and everything becomes real in the mind. And when you, and and in somebody's mind, it is different. Every single, but we can look at the same thing, or hear the same thing would probably be better. We can read the same thing, hear the same thing, and we will all see something different in our minds. And when someone else takes control and puts an image in front of us and says, "This is what we've been describing and talking about," it won't match anybody's perception.
5: Well, getting to something a little more modern, you know there was a big debate, you know, about how when Rawlings wrote her uh, <clears throat> Harry Potter books, uh-huh. it was getting children to read again. And a lot of people were very concerned when the movies came out. When children saw the characters, would that diminish their interest in reading, or would would there be a letdown? And I never heard if kids felt let down when they saw. The, I know the movies were successful, but whether kids had their images uh, changed from 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 reading to watching, I don't know how how that affected those children that read first. That's
1: interesting.
5: I do know that I heard about a second grade teacher once that was reading a story to her kids in class. And all of a sudden, this child interrupted the teacher and she says, Where's the dog? And the, t- and the teacher says, you know, she says, you're, you're, you're telling us about a dog. Where is the dog? And the child couldn't grasp the idea that she was reading about a dog. He expected to see a picture or an image of the dog, and he was just frustrated that she was just talk- reading about a dog. He didn't
1: know how to shape it in his mind.
5: Yeah. And that's a that's one of the great things about radio. In addition to uh, literature, is it, it it has those images and huh? most kids who listen to radio once they hear a radio drama, you really have you, with modern kids you really have to be selective in what you play because you know you, you you don't want something that's so dated they wouldn't understand it, and you have to get a story that they can really grasp. But um, most people, once they hear a story, are very happy with what they hear and seem pleased. And even if there isn't real radio drama on regular radio today, the, the fact that the books on tape and the audio books are so successful with people, people are buying them so, or are renting them, so there is a market for those kind of things. Uh-huh. I only, my only complaint about books on tape... Are audio books commercial audio books? As many of them are abridged.
1: I noticed that, and a commercial
5: a commercial sale. They're afraid people won't buy twenty CDs or twenty cassettes. But
1: well, if you want the story and you're interested enough to want to know the story, you're interested enough to buy the whole thing.
5: And how do you pick what to bridge particularly in a novel?
1: Right. Anything that you take out of a novel, I don't care how many shortcuts and how many times you say, oh, well, this will work, they won't miss anything here. Well, in that case, it wouldn't have been in the original, folks. <laughs> you, know, you start trimming down somebody else's work, and even if the author starts trimming down his or her own work, it just doesn't come out right.
0: Uh, I have to give a quick plug here uh, to uh, Ben Omar. He has now started an audio book division. So, Bob Mills was mentioning that his book now—he read it—took 11 hours to read a book. And so, if you go to Bear, I think it's BearAudio.com, you can start purchasing audio, complete audio versions of those books. So, I'm glad to see uh, that Ben's really trying to get everything transferred, uh, to those people who want to have, you know, the complete copies of these types of books.
5: Well, I'm also glad. Speaking of Bear Manor, I, I. I did see, I was going through some of my tapes today, and I found a couple of back issues of Radiogram, and I'm thinking about your 75th anniversary of Fibber McGee coming up. There was a, a new book, I guess, that Bear Manor, Bear Manor put out a year, I guess it was almost two years ago now, about River McGee and Molly. I'll have to look up the title. Okay, while the sure.
0: I know they had the uh, scrapbook.
5: Right, and Tom Price and, Tom and, and Mr. Stump did, Heavenly Day. Right. But there's a new book about Fibber McGee that Bear Manor put out. That went, and it, it actually had in the title Fibber McGee and Molly, nineteen thirty-five to nineteen fifty-nine. So maybe I could, if I find that author or a review of it, I'll let you know. Sure. Well, may I, for, maybe
0: I can browse through the website and come across it. So I'll see what Ben have done on Fibber here lately.
5: Yeah. Well, that's going to be that's going to be a big special when you put that together on April sixteenth
1: going to be fun, for sure.
5: Yeah, and I have a feeling, Patricia, that I'm, as a big of a Fibber McGee fan as you are, I know you're really looking forward to that day.
1: I am really looking forward to that day.
5: Do you have a favorite era of Fibber McGee shows? Like, did you like the early shows, the whole era, the 15-minute show? I mean, did you have a favorite era for Fibber McGee and Molly? Yes, and
1: I'm not sure I could identify it as an era, uh, it, it crossed a time period. It begins, oh, probably in the mid-30s, like around 1935 and 1936, and travels all the way through the 40s and tips into the 50s.
5: Through the Johnson's uh, Wax Era, then.
1: Yes, that too. But also with uh, Pet Milk and the Aluminum, uh, Reynolds Aluminum sponsorship, there, there is some of that in there, and I, I never... Associated the quality of the shows with the quality of the advertising. and that was all top advertising, so you didn't have much to compare there. But as we were talking about later, there are some listeners who who evaluate the shows in in blocks that are related to what's happening with advertisers. So for the entire Johnson Wax series, you've got aficionados who will say, oh, this is the only time it's on. Uh, they, they won't even listen to some of the other shows, no matter how good they are. I, on the other hand, will go through and say, oh, this is a great show. This is a great show. This is a good show. Put this one away. I don't ever want to listen to it again. This is a great show. They, they're on their own merits. So I would say mid-30s through through the war, at least through the war. The war years were fabulous.
5: Did you feel the show really lost something when it went to the 15-minute and later the monitor five-minute format? Minute?
1: Absolutely, and I was uh, dancing around this with Mr. Cook tonight. I think it was not had nothing to do with the time change. It had everything to do with stripping down the the cast to nothing, and taking away the audience that people were accustomed to, had no spontaneity at the beginning of the show. There was always something funny that was said that got them worked up. Harlow Harlow Wilcox worked up the audience. He was the one who warmed them up with something and left them laughing so that when the show opened, they were laughing. You could hear laughter on every single Show that Harlow Wilcox opened. They're laughing. And that set a tone and a connection that just is not there and never was there in shows that have no audience, and that's, of course, the 15-minute shows, and then the short shorts.
5: Well, you know, it's interesting that, hang on, it's interesting that people had a totally different reaction to, let's say, when Lum and Abner switched from a 15-minute show without an audience to a 30-minute show with an audience, most people feel Roman and Abner did not have the same quality once an audience was there.
1: I agree. I, is it perhaps the fact that there was change in something that was comfortable and appreciated? People got half-an-hour show They got an audience. They got a rich roster of characters. And as the shows moved away from the prime years, they took things away. It's almost like a a parallel to a union. You can give them anything, and they'll be thrilled. But as soon as you take something away, no matter how much good it's going to do, when you take something away, they feel robbed.
0: He must the one show that survived that was Amos and Andy. If you think about it, if you go through the historical part, it was so popular during the Great Depression, and then it recreated itself when it went to the, uh, the Situation Comedy. Most collectors and fans love the 30-minute shows.
5: Right, and most do not like the music. Of course, there aren't that many music halls around.
0: No, but I'm um, just thinking uh, that show had a popularity in both in the 15-minute segment, which was a more of a chronological storyline, and also uh, it had a totally different population base among collectors and fans who loved the way the situation comedy of Amos and Andy played out.
5: I'm thinking, too, of the show you and I like, uh, Ethel and Albert, mm-hmm. a.k.a. The Couple Next Door. Yeah. It was a totally different show when it was an audience in 30 minutes. Right. Uh, Peg even said, I think in one of the interviews that you sent me, I think she said that it was a total... Doing a 30-minute show was a totally different thing than, you know, than a 15-minute serial serial serialization. Right.
3: Mhm. Uh-huh.
5: Yet on the other hand, most collectors feel the best yours truly Johnny Dollars were, the, even if it most for most of its run it was a 30-minute show, but most collectors consider the 15-minute serialized stories to be the best ones.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I have not listened to enough of the five part serialized ones. I've listened to some I've got a really good collection of Johnny dollars and I run in spurts for an entire week I'll listen to Johnny Dollar for an entire week I'll listen to Fibromedi and Molly for an entire week I'll listen to Henry Aldrich and I, do, I think that probably says a lot about my personality mm-hmm. but um, when I what when did we start out with when I when I get to Amos and Andy It seems to me that they have stayed or did stay pretty much in familiar territory. They didn't change a whole lot. They didn't change what was going on around them. The stories changed, and occasionally Andy would get himself into a long-term problem like with Madam Queen. Mm -hmm. But the essence of the show that people became familiar with didn't change. And I think that's
5: the important feature. When right. And, of course, of course, another great example of a show that failed when it went to half an hour was Bick and Tate. When it went, you know, that one season it was on mutual for half an hour once a week.
3: Uh-huh.
5: And apparently that did not go well with the public. Of course, Walt and I have talked about when a few years ago when KNX in L.A. was still doing an hour of OTR at night On Saturday, they did dramas through the week, but on Saturday, they did a comedy night with Jack Banning, and it might be Armis Brooks, or it might be uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen. But one year, they tried Vic and Sade on Saturday nights. And after, was it six weeks, Walden, eight weeks, very few weeks.
0: Very, very few.
5: Vic and Sade was dropped, and they replaced it with Ozzy and Harriet. And we've come to the conclusion that probably the majority of radio listeners could not grasp the show. I mean, you have to have an ear for it. It's kind of like Bob and Ray. You kind of have to have an ear for it.
1: Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I've just been having a discussion about Vic and Save with another person who absolutely adores them. And I listened to a couple of random shows and scratched my head and said, I have an awful lot of stuff that I have on my want-to-read-as-soon-as-I-can-before-I-die list, and I can't see any reason to put something like a Vic and Sade up there if I can't make sense out of a handful of shows. Why bother? And he convinced me to listen to a couple in sequence, and it sounds better. It's getting warmer, so maybe I will add Vic and Sade, but it's one of the shows that I think you either love or you don't. There's nothing in between.
5: It's kind of like Bob and Ray's the same way. Yeah. You really have to understand. What helps with Bob and Ray, it helps if you understand and if you know what they're parodying. When they parody radio shows, if you're an OTR person and they do Mr. Trace, keener than most persons, and you know what they're parodying, or Lauren Spechtenberger, Interstellar Officer's Candidate, the Kitty Space Shows, or One Fellow's Family parodying One Man's if, if you know what they're parodying, uh-huh. that helps a lot.
1: It helps. It, but they were good enough, Jim. In my opinion, anyway, they were good enough that even if people couldn't lock into what they were poking fun at, it was still a great show.
5: But When, when, when Wally Baloo interrupts his guest, uh-huh. Every time, or he always, he always doesn't get the story quite right, or or the inebriated sportscaster Steve Bosco, or Bit Burns, or whoever those characters. Yeah. There are real reporters like that. I mean, there I, I can't think of any names right now, but there are reporters that have that ability to butt in and interrupt and uh, all of that. And it was a, you know, and of course, that was another example. You know, they tried Bob and Ray. I've never heard of any of the shows, but according to Dunning's book, they did have for one season... Bob and Ray with an orchestra and a studio audience. And again, it just didn't catch on the way this shorter or serialized or 15-minute or monitor sections did. Uh Yeah, they tried a 30-minute or maybe it was even a 60-minute variety show. And I guess another example, most collectors who are big Henry Morgan fans preferred the 15-minute Here's Morgan comments he did over the 30-minute show with an audience.
1: Well, that would make sense. Without an audience, and Fibber is my, my, I always pick on poor Fibber, but they went through so many transitions in the life of the show, so they've always got something that's pickable. And when they went to no audience, the first thing that I picked up was the lack of joy in the show. Jim and Mary and Jordan kind of flattened out. The scripts were okay. A lot of them were reworks of original scripts that most people had already heard if they were following Fibber, McGee, and Molly. But the spark was gone. There just wasn't any spark. And I'm...
5: With the Kingsman not there, with Billy Mills not there, and canned music.
1: But even more than that, in that particular show, because they started with an audience and the audience created energy, when that energy went away, there was nothing. They weren't playing for laughs. They weren't looking at people. They weren't taking the audience with them. They had no audience to take with them. It was that they were saying words back and forth to each other. And I think the lack of audience hurt them very badly.
5: Yeah, and, and, and the sad thing is it was all done. To save money by the networks, you know, the 50s, is, which is kind of my specialty for radio, because that's the decade I remember, uh-huh. 50s were fascinating in two respects, bad and fascinating. Some of the best radio drama, and I'm talking not so much about the comedy, but drama, like Gunsmoke, like Dragnet, like um, the CBS Radio Workshop, Frontier Gentlemen, uh, the science fiction shows, um, Some of the best drama have gone. All all these things came out in the 50s. High quality. High quality drama. But yet at the same time, the established shows took shortcuts, like getting rid of audiences, like canned music, like losing sponsors, or having multi-sponsors, you know, that interrupted the show. The best shows, were some of the best drama was on in the 50s, but yet you could also tell the, much of the quality had gone out of many of the productions.
1: The, the quality certainly was compromised. Walton, what do you think? Uh-huh. I'm just sitting here and I'm just thinking
0: that is a very good observation that, that some of the great dramas are in the 50s. And maybe, maybe I, you know, me as being a radio buff, true buff, I, I love the 40s so much because that's where I think the radio was its best. Even though I, I do love a lot of the, you know, the Screen Director's Playhouse, the different uh, comedy series that ran into this defeat, they had that element. But there was definitely a different gear shift.
5: Uh-huh. Well, you know, and, and in some shows, you know, the quality, the, uh, and, and a lot of it I know was economics. And I know, I think Jim Cox said in his book, Say Goodnight, Gracie, he said it kind of really hit like a sore wound when you would be listening to a show that you that, that was very popular that had, been, had a longtime sponsor. And then in the 50s, you would hear that same show with commercials, not commercials, but spots for savings bonds and the like. And you knew the quality, something with sponsors gone, something had been gone gone with it. Do
1: you think part of the, the sense of missing, came from the fact that people knew what the original was?
5: Probably, and that they remembered it, and they, they, they had a fondness for it. I still, to this day, cannot grasp, and maybe I'm just such a radio fan, that I just can't face reality. Maybe You know, after 30 years of this, people say, well, can't you face reality? Well, maybe I can't, and that is, I could never understand why the radio industry just paved in the way it did. I mean huh? the reason I say that is television I know was popular with people. People watch television, but it, it didn't kill the movie industry. There were fears it might but movies are still big. It didn't kill st- the Broadway stage. the stage plays are still around more expensive but still around
3: uh-huh.
5: but radio is the one medium. That truly died. And it's just, you know, and I've, I've, it's always bothered me that we don't have room in our entertainment society for radio and television. I'm not saying get rid of television, I know you never can, but it's always bothered me that there doesn't seem to be room in our programming, programmers' minds for both mediums.
0: I wonder how to fix that. I think it's
2: happening.
5: On yesterday please like
0: yesterday USA it certainly well I think in, I think in television is eroding so fast right now because of the economic structure I think it's a big wild opportunity for radio right at the moment if somebody would throw money and drama on radio because uh, the networks uh, have lost so much of the ratings to cable and other forms of media the internet that that's why the reality segments gotten to be Soap operas because it's cheap. Yeah. And they're not spending money in drama. They're only spending on a couple series, Law and Order, and all the di- version of CSI, and that's about it.
5: Comedies, they're they're even declining. Right.
0: Yeah. Even the traditional soap operas are dying. And so, where are people, you know, if it's going to be all reality TV and different things like that on television, where are people going to go for the drama and comedy? there might be a place for radio.
5: Well, let's hope, because I'm thinking, like, I can't believe that the public is will be so in, infatuated if say, talk radio that it could go on in its present form for another 20 or 30 years. I would think, and I'm not talking about the political agenda of the host or anything like that. I'm just talking about, I would think, that with funny talk stations on the dial, I would think boredom would set in rather than politics. and reduce the format. Wouldn't you agree, Patricia, that boredom would, uh, people would get bored with just the same, the same thing every day?
1: Well, there's such variety in old-time radio. It's a staggering variety.
5: I agree. But in modern radio, there is, there is such boredom with present-day commercial radio. Well,
1: and I was just going to say, but that doesn't take away the social influences that we have going for us. I mean, when you put a television in a car, it's it, we have a mindset and an ability, a focus factor that is close to zero. Yeah. And when we're standing people in we're sitting people in front of a radio, attention is all they have.
5: Yeah, and, you know, t- uh, television... Uh... I could understand, you know, why why it was popular in in some respects, but in in other respects, people I don't I'm, I think sometimes people just have it on, and they don't even really pay attention to what they're watching. They have it on just to have it on, you know, just as background.
1: And it is for so many programs, mindless pablum. Talking for a little bit with Mr. Cook tonight differentiating gag writing from comedy. And what we have in, I will say, the majority of our comedies is a series of gag lines within a milieu. We've got a group of people in a setting, which allows it to be a sitcom. And it's a series of gags, back and forth, back and forth. Most of them are jibes at different people. So when one gets zapped and poked, everybody else gets to laugh. Then it's reversed. They talk in in terms that are less than polished. I'll, I'll say less than polished. And unless there is a willingness to honest to goodness recognize that there's a difference between the gag writing that's happening on these shows and comedy writing where you have a funny sequence of events that don't pivot on one-liners. It pivots on good writing and a consistent situation that is just plain funny. You've got high points and low points, but it's not built on jabs and one-liners. That's a lot of talking to say, I don't think we're going to get their attention.
5: Yeah, well, you know, it's like... uh The literate comedies on TV, most people would agree that uh, the the literate comedies would have been things like, well, in the 70s, it would have been All in the Family. In the 60s, it would have been something like the Andy Griffith Show. In the 50s, it would have been, you know, maybe... uh, Well, I Love Lucy was funny for the dialogue or the visual things Lucy did. It was probably a combination of both. I mean, when Lucy would disguise herself as something to play a trick on Ricky. I suppose a lot of that was the visual, just as much as the dialogue.
1: Yeah, and then we went to, in in that particular thing, we were closer to um, vaudeville slapstick in her antics with Ricky. So you had still another form of comedy that came in there. But at that, at least it had a storyline. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It had a crisis and a sub-crisis. There was always something going on with Ricky, and then there was...
5: red and an apple, of course, and their troubles, the troubles. By the way, I've never... I was joking with a friend of mine. I, we were having some personal troubles with one of our former landlords, and I was saying to one of my friends, do you know anyone that has a relationship with their landlord like... Bruce, Lucy, and Ricky had with Fred and Ethel, and my friend said no.
1: Automatically, not. I mean, he didn't know anybody, and the automatic answer was, "I know exactly what you're talking about." Isn't that interesting?
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, they actually went on trips with their landlord. Most time, when you're with your landlord, you you just pay them their rent and just try to keep them away most of the time in real life, you know. But it was, uh, but it was uh fun. and I guess the thing is too is that on. It's interesting that uh, some comics, we, a friend of mine and I were talking a few weeks ago about how Milton Burrow, for the most part, was a total flop on radio. I mean, his shows were, you know, he, he had an audience, but on TV he just took off like hotcakes.
1: He was a visual, an audiovisual person. He fit in the audiovisual category with Bob and Ray when they were on television, um, they weren't strict. He wasn't strictly video. He brought so much from radio and vaudeville as well, and he successfully integrated it on the television side of this, and and put together characters who made it.
5: Well, it's also interesting that Martin and Lewis were very successful on television, but auditorially on radio, you know. Many people feel their material from an audio standpoint kind of felt flat, felt flat. But there are people that liked it too. But I bet mean, many more people think they were better visual comics than audio comics.
3: Yes,
1: you had a person to go with the crazy squeaky voice of Jerry, and then it made sense because he could get this goofy face on him. That was hard to imagine on radio, and you had Dean who was. The sensible one, but the one who tended to take advantage of other people, that's hard to work with in radio, when you've got two really strong personalities and that's what the show is based on. Yeah. That's exceedingly hard to pull off. But in television, it was great.
5: Well, I I guess another example, so many of the radio comedies did not do well on television. We talked about Fiverr McGee and Molly earlier. Another example... The Great Gildersleeve had one season on television.
1: And was a bomb?
5: It was. And Willard Waterman played the part, but he was the only original cast member, you know, on the television version.
1: You cannot have anything without Leroy, and Leroy was not geared for television.
5: Right. I always found it interesting how, Wald and I have talked about this, how Leroy, Marjorie grew up, got married, had twins. Mm-hmm. Leroy never grew up on the show. No. Oh. So that was interesting to me. And I guess part of that had to do with the fact of Walter Catley playing the voice, probably.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. He he fit the voice. He fit the circumstances. It didn't... Age was not a factor with him. It was who he was, what he can do, and what his physical appearance was. It kept him Leroy.
5: Right. It kept yeah.
1: him Julius Abruzio.
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, he was just... Julius was just so so funny and and so obnoxious at the same but yet you just I just love the way that he would uh the way he would upset the the way he would upset Frankie and Phil it was just so you know it was just so funny the dialogue between them and, and he, he he played that wiseacre part just, just so perfectly i mean it one could have done it better
1: it was out of the Bronx hey mr harris what's going on here <laughs>
5: And it, now I haven't seen any of the halls of Ivy TV shows. That and I don't know if you ever saw any videos of them. Did that transfer well to television? I know it was on one season or two on television.
0: I've heard nine audio, and there's something missing. Yeah. There's something. Maybe I think radio allows a little warmth that television does not. Yeah. And I think, and I think, even though Ronald Coleman was a brilliant movie actor, that show was fit for radio. And maybe that was due to Don Quinn's writing. Maybe he was a, a, a radio writer at heart.
5: Yeah. The marriage uh, with Jessica Chandy and Hume Cronin, they try, They even tried that on TV for one summer. And that did not go well on television either. Hmm.
1: Uh, you said something that tickled my brain. With Ronald and Vanita... They were together on radio. You could imagine what was going on in their household. And people would say they really like each other. You can hear it in their voices. Characteristic, that uh, personality part does not translate to television. People are busy looking at things, and they're not paying attention enough to be able to say you can hear it in their voices. Yeah. They're overwhelming a different set of senses. Right. And the ears have gone to hear sound, not to hear messages.
5: What's also interesting that Fred Allen, while he made many fine guest appearances on television, he did not do well on the visual medium himself. I mean, he was, he was perfect for radio.
1: See, and I think he was not perfect for radio, but he was perfect... For guest appearances on radio as well, he was fabulous. Yeah, he could fit right into a situation. He was unscripted, so he was free to be himself and to be a good comedian. Nobody told him what to say and where to say it and how to do it. He was fabulous. He should have been a professional guest.
5: Yeah, and of course, and he was. Uh... And a, but a, the thing on radio, of course, that made him stand out was that, of course, his supporting players on radio really made that show go. You know, like the uh, the people in Allen's Alley. Uh,
0: Patricia gave me a, a guy who dropped this little joke in. You uh, know, um, Patricia was saying Fred Allen should sure have been a permanent uh, a, a, a total a permanent guest on People's Show. Uh-huh. And, uh A great great observation, good. Go, Patricia, and this is what I thought of: um, 1946, 47. Al Joseph made a comeback, and people said, "Al, you need to have your go- show." And he was guest shot on every why, and only be on once a week.
5: Yeah, that's well, you know, and when you think about it, if you listen to the show from 47, 40, he was on just about every show. Was Benny, Bing Crosby, right? Uh, uh uh all of them I hope every show every show,
0: but see, Fred Allen would have fit he could have been on everybody's show, and I don't think people were really tired of it,
1: yeah, yeah, like I would have loved to have seen and heard those shows from Fred Allen, where he is the stranger in the pack, a guest on a variety of shows, and he would he would spark up shows beyond anyone's expectations, and give us something so special. He was so terrific when he was himself.
0: I have, and I think I played on the other once. Maybe I should dig it up sometime again. Uh, Fred was on the West Coast, and he came over right after You Bet You Like taping, and they recorded over 10 minutes of them just swapping stories and telling jokes. Groucho Marx and Fred Allen together. Oh, boy. Yeah. There you go.
1: My God, what a show that must have been.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this was just a private recording. Somebody just rolled a tape. I thought that was? Yeah. Yeah. I, oh. I, I should dig that out sometime and play that again. Well,
5: you know, that, that's another example. In
0: fact, I just remember, so on, it's, it, you'll hear some of that on the out on the, uh, on the Larry, Ray Bream interview because the Gasman remembered it and brought it to the studio that night. Good. So those of you who want to listen to some down Allen tomorrow night, that's one of the highlights of the uh, three, of the three hour special tomorrow night.
5: Looking forward to that. Uh, that was another example, though, where the Groucho was able to do "You Bet Your Life" mm-hmm. on both media very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and I think a lot of that had to do with Groucho himself, you know, just his ability to ad lib with the, with the contestants and. Make his remarks, and uh,
1: and his provision that he could edit,
5: right. And and you know the reason most Dunning and others feel the reason Show had so many problems before on other radio shows is because they were scripted and stuff. And when when Groucho didn't have a script and could just add live the way he did, it, it it just worked. It just worked perfectly.
1: Mm-hmm. He, another one who was so sharp and so quick-witted. That having a script would
5: have killed him. Yeah. It did. Well, he, he certainly he certainly did did, did well, and the, and the quiz, of course, was just a very minor part of the thing. He he could have done, he could have just ad libbed and done a talk show with those guests without the quiz, and I think it still would have been successful. Mm-hmm. Just by the ad libbing.
1: Yes. Yes, I I agree. There are times when I'm listening to that show and I'm oh, gosh, no, no, not the questions, keep on going. So I agree with you. He could have done, if he kept the same four sets or three sets, I guess there were four people, maybe.
5: Four couples, or three or four.
1: Three or four couples. Um, back, yeah. And uh, if he had kept them and just kept the repartee going and maybe even had two couples at the same time, and have them going at
0: each other. Um, he could have done it. They had a hand at John Goodell. They rotate. They didn't restrict that show in the actual recording. A lot of times those shows went to 45 minutes or better, and then they put a broadcast that edited down to
5: 30 minutes. I'm told there are some uh, unedited un- recordings around of those 45-minute mm-hmm. yeah. sessions. Yeah, And I bet those are very hilarious. All right.
1: Walton, do you think that having the ability to edit created a better show because he was more relaxed?
0: I think so. They, they, they And I think John Goodell felt that he was best with our script in his hand, and he and he could pluck the best of to make it work. And so John must have done a very good job, because none of us could really tell that he took maybe something from here and something from there.
5: Or taped? Uh-huh. Had it been a live show, I don't think it would have had the same effect, probably.
0: Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> it, allowed, it allowed Groucho to pull into areas, uh, and then it was gold when he struck gold. Especially, especially when he got a funny guess who came back at him. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and he would be the perfect straight man for you on that. And here, you, you, uh, Groucho, doing his little routine, and if he got a guess that said. Yeah, he said something, uh, you know, that Groucho had played. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah. He was another quick-change artist who could take anything you gave him and make something
5: out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and, you know, when, when you mention, and it is one of the reference books, I guess it was Dunning's book, said, you know, if a used car, if a used car salesman was his guest, and Groucho would naturally just automatically say, when were you indicted
3: last?
5: <laughs> just that kind of thing like that. Just.
1: Right. Oh, he was so insulting, and people
3: loved it.
5: <laughs> or, 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 as he is done, he also said, if a person's real name was Crumb, then he really had problems, you know.
3: Oh, yes.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, it was a different time. This, in this era, someone who was spoken to like that and enjoyed it, would have been convinced it was an insult, it was public slander, they should meet him in court and get a trillion, squillion dollars. It's, it has ruined the spontaneity of these kinds of programs, and I don't think we'll ever see fresh ones. We have to rely on the old ones. It will be the only place that we will get that.
5: Right, and if a person, you know, you know, if a person went on Groucho's show and he did not make the remarks, then that would have been the letdown for that contestant. Let's say if he just, you know, if he had just done the straight quiz or just not said any funny remarks. But people knew what they were getting into when they were his contestants. They knew he was going to say something.
1: Right, yeah, you don't have a brick for a brain. You know what's going to happen here if you even watch
5: the show. Something like that today, I'm told that, like, when Don Rickles performs... Mm-hmm. And you're in the club with Don Rickles, and if and if, if he spots you, and if, if many people just out in the audience hoping he will say something insulting to them,
1: that they will be insulted because it is his shtick. You're right, and part of the happiness or part of the worthiness of their presence is to be available to be part of the act. Everybody wants to be part of the act.
5: I Jimmy to Randy said everyone wants to get into the act.
1: Yes. Yes. And I think Don Rickles but his entire routine, his entire performance is built on insults.
5: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think I think that probably keeps him off the hook. If he were only five minutes out of every thirty insults, he'd be open to all sorts of attacks from the outside. Because his entire show is insults. Well, don't go. I mean, this is no surprise. You know? <laughs> of course, you know you're
5: going to be insulted if you go to an insult show. Right. Well, you know, it's like um, it. You know, you 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 have the images like uh, um, I, I, I I guess people who have gone to these radio shows tell me what a memorable experience it was. I I, I know one of my friends did see an Armist Brooks show once, and I I I said I w- you know I wish. He said he couldn't remember the date, and I said, I wish, you know, if I knew the date, I could maybe find you the show that you attended. But he talked about what a fun experience it was to be in the audience and see those people perform like that. And then I guess the same way, like if people... Have you ever met anybody, Patricia, who actually witnessed a McGee and Molly show in the audience and talked to them about their experience? Never. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it would be in a memorable. If you did, I'm sure that person would find it a very memorable evening.
0: I only know one. Yeah. Frank Brzee.
5: Oh, he did attend one.
0: Uh-huh. He used to attend. He used to attend the show in the in the uh, in the in the um, in the box up there, the producer's box.
5: Oh, I bet. Yeah. I bet he told you some interesting stories about. it. Well,
0: him. that's why I believe. That's why he would. One could tell you where Molly sat. Uh, table, case all all that
5: mm-hmm. you know yeah, uh, so we saw like the Harlow wilcox warm up, yeah, stuff. yep, yeah, well, you know it was a it was a different time then and a true. special time and a, and a very enjoyable time. I'm just glad Walden that you and Patricia and others uh, yesterday u s a and elsewhere are keeping these things alive for us because it makes uh We don't want to sound like cranky old men and women who say, well, today's totally rotten and yesterday was great, and I'm sure in many respects things are better today in many respects than they were in the 40s and 50s. But I do think that the entertainment quality was certainly more special then than it is now. I mean, when you think of all the people, my brother and I were talking once when I was visiting him in Chicago the Bob Hope movie on television, and we were talking about people that were in that era. Just how talented they were. We talked about Benny Hope, Crosby, and uh, Groucho, and all the many of the same people we've been talking about tonight. Just how talented those people were, and they were all in that same era. And and you know the... That today, I'm, I'm sure there are talented people today, but it, but, uh, but I guess you could say it's a different kind of talent
3: uh-huh.
5: than what we had then. Not necessarily better. I mean, we might think they're better, but maybe the best word would be different.
0: Well, I think, you know, Patricia and I didn't grow up in the old-time era. I, I look at it this way. We discover the hidden gems. Yeah, and that's what radio really is. It's the hidden gem that most people don't know about, and it's, that's what makes it so fun to listen to it. Because, we are blessed to have such my like good good quality at our fingertips by just grabbing a CD and put putting it on the air.
5: Well, I'm still amazed. I'm still amazed just how much stuff has survived. Mm-hmm. How good the sound is on much. I mean, the sounds improved over the years. And just how many things have surfaced that I never dreamed would have when I started collecting in the early 70s that I never dreamed as much material would come out as has come out.
1: I am fortunate in the sense that I have not been an aficionado, no, that's not the right word that gives me too many compliments. I have not been an enthusiastic old time radio fan for perhaps six years, which is many, many, many compared to the people involved in old-time radio who have expertise like you do, and Walden does, and I'm going to be in babyhood for the rest of my life. But when I found these shows, it was like I stepped into a magical kingdom. It was wonderful. And the first group or first show that I Really, really enjoyed, and I wanted to come back for more and more and more with Fibber McGee and Molly. And it's still, it's still an upfront favorite for me. I can name now probably half a dozen shows that would make me say, Oh yeah, I would
5: love to listen to that. You remember the first Fibber McGee and Molly show you ever heard was, and what what the plot was of the first show that heard that you heard that really hooked you onto the show?
1: I'll have to think about that for a minute because I've listened to everything. (laughs) I'll
0: tell you what, I think my first one I ever had, Jim. Okay. Was an h hat tape. And there was a time when the Fibber McGee and Molly Company, the Fibber McGee Company was out. And it's the one where uh, uh, Fibber was going to go big game hunting. Okay. That's the first one I ever had complete. And
5: And my first was the Magic Act. Uh, the Magic Act.
0: I got that one fairly early. That came on a record album. Uh, the Magic Act was on one side, and on the other side was Molly making a dress.
5: Okay. Yeah. And then when we've talked about the first Yoder Sleeve, I remember, with the Jolly Boys band.
0: Oh, which I adore,
5: that yeah. That me, is so funny. Oh, yeah. Uh, them playing the waltz of the flowers so lousily. it's mm-hmm. just-,
1: <laughs> you know, just a little bit off. Made the show. It's... They had played perfectly. It would have been a ho hog
5: thing. Yeah, and it was just, just yeah. it, The dialogue with, with Hooker and and uh, TV and those people and uh, the, the club even almost breaking up because of the egos involved. It was just it, it and and you know people would not a lot of people today would not understand why why that was funny, but yet when you listen to it, you just can't help but just 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 get, get laughing at the thing. Uh-huh. And I think the R. Miss Brooks show. I trying not remember what the R. Miss Brooks show was.
0: First one I ever heard. Uh, it's the cannon, the cannon in the school, in the in the school hall hallway. Yeah, that was the first one I
5: ever heard. Well, I, I, I like the one about the cafeteria revolt, where they revolt against the bad food, and the newspaper reporter comes in, and that's William Conrad playing the reporter. Uh,
1: that was that was a good one.
5: And. Just anything to get Gail Gordon peeved. I mean, if he didn't get peeved in an episode, then
3: right? oops
5: Yes. When he said that, yes, yes, the inevitable rage he would get into towards the end of each show of, of uh-huh. some kind of some, and it was just you know, it, and again that was another example of just just perfect perfect casting. Uh, each
1: other, the personalities of the characters, I think, were probably a reflection of the people, even to a portion of an extent, and that created electricity.
5: Yeah, it did. And uh, some shows, you know, I admit I, I, I can't, I mean, Walden knows probably what my least favorite comedy is. Which is...
0: Blondie, probably. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll get that for you someday. I'll find all 500 missing episodes and give it to you, Jim, sometime. Oh,
5: I promise you this. Yeah. Well, then if you do that, yeah. we'll donate them to the Yesterday USA Ox. <laughs> They'll continue. <laughs> you know.
1: Don't put my name on it. It's going to be regifted. <laughs> yeah,
5: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 and then there are a few other comedies that, you know, it's hard for me to totally get into Duffy's Tavern, but maybe I haven't heard enough of them. You know, some shows, you hear one or two episodes, Chuck Faden might play one, or huh? somebody else might play one. And I, guess, I guess there are some shows you you can't really judge it by one episode or two, I suppose, right? You have to hear a number of them.
1: I think there are some shows that wind up being, I like it or I don't like it. There just is nothing in between. yeah. Vic and Sade. I got introduced to Vic and Sade. I played a couple of shows, and I thought, and I had seen the show name Vic and Sade mentioned so many times on the Digest, on the All Time Radio Digest. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something to this. So I went and I listened to three or four shows, and I thought, I don't get it. I don't hear it. I don't see it. But I made a set of Vic and Sade. I found them. I found them. They're not the easiest ones in the world to find, but I did find them and had them as a prize over the holidays. And someone who really likes Vic and Sade wound up with the set. And I think it's it's five CDs. And these are 15-minute shows. So that's, that's a lot of shows when you can pack them on five CDs. And... He wrote back and he said, you know, there really are some wonderful things in here. Please just try it. And I wrote back and I I said, I don't mean to be insulting, but there are so many things that I love that I haven't been through the first time. And he was so insistent. I mean, he wasn't rude or anything about it, but he was hes just convinced. So I listened to a handful in sequence, and I thought, well, it's not as bad as I thought it was. So I'll do a little bit of work and see if I can warm up to it, but right now it's somewhere on a list of one to a hundred. It's somewhere around 104. <laughs>
5: Is there any show that you had heard about in OTR circles, heard people talk about either on Yesterday USA or on The Digest or elsewhere that was uh, – I mean, I guess they can say was one example, was there any other show you can think of where you heard a lot about this show, how great it was, and you heard an episode, and you said, I, I was just so disappointed?
1: Well, some of the series, and I'm not sure other people loved what was going down. Mary of the Circus was one of them. Yeah. The Green Valley Line was atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. And is an
5: early expert of George W. Trindle, WXYZ. Was it? That's according. That's what Neil Ellis said once. It, it was a WXYZ creation.
1: Okay. Whoever created it should have been sent to his room. <laughs> I downloaded it. I put together a collection that I call the worst ever and I keep adding a show here and there to that. I did send one to Walden, and one of the shows that's in there is Blair of the Mounties, which is <laughs> on a scale of 1 to 100, it's a minus 2. And it, it just it baffles you that these things, and people talk about them. They say, oh, yeah, this is a pretty good show, and I enjoyed it, and my kids like to listen to it. It's dreadful.
5: Do you think my, my my subject of interest has always been and I, I and maybe one day we can do a show called this rich man poor man and what I what I mean by that is shows that were successful and they inspired soundalikes that tried to imitate mm-hmm. and the imitations were so bad well I'll give a few examples the green Hornet there was a show called the blue Beetle right uh, let's see. Uh, there, there was uh, uh, the, the shadow inspi- had the Avenger. Right. So You've heard the Avenger, which was, you know, he could make himself invisible. Uh-huh. Uh, the Whistler inspired a series called Diary of Fate. I don't know if you've ever heard Diary of Fate or not. No. Fate tells the story of a criminal that gets trapped or caught or fouled up by some... Mistake of his life, but they try to imitate the Whistler to me so slavish. I mean, you, you know, it's like uh, yeah. yeah. The only main difference is, well, the Whistler is kind of cheerful as he goes along and says, <laughs> "You really thought you could do it, didn't you, George?" Or, or no, he says, "You you were unhappy, weren't you, George?" Where fate would say, "But you chose evil, George." You know, just and you could just tell. You know, the story would always end in some twist. He would make some mistake that would foul him or her up. But they would, you know, these the shows would imitate.
1: Knockoffs rarely work. What's that? Knockoffs rarely work.
5: Yeah, yeah.
1: When you, when you do a cheap duplicate, not, not a duplicate, a copy, when you do a cheap copy of anything that's good, the quality, you can only have one best
5: well, there are a couple of imitations, uh, maybe imitations isn't the fair word, that were similar-sounding shows that, that work. Like, for example, I always thought the lineup was just about as good as Dragnet, as a police show. Or uh, or uh, Broadway, as my beat, was just about as good as Dragnet was. Or another example might be in the on the Westerns, uh, Walden uh, said something once that I found very interesting, and and it's certainly an interesting opinion because other people, you know, probably feel differently, but didn't you say once, as a Western, you actually thought the six-shooter was superior to Gunsmoke? I do. In your opinion. In my opinion. In my
1: opinion, I agree. Yeah. And Gunsmoke is a superior show. I'm not taking away from that.
3: No.
1: I think Frontier Gentlemen had a wider script range, more interesting experiences. It was a novelty, and I don't mean that in, you know, I I picked up a Chinese keychain today, that's a novelty. I mean novelty in the sense that the story was a departure from what you normally expected in something that was set in the West.
5: Never been any Western like that ever. No. Television.
1: And and it was masterfully executed. It put itself in a Western environment, but the um, protagonist was not a Western character. So he turned, he was more powerful than what was going on around him.
5: Right, and he, 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 it was was a a sophistication, there was a sophistication and intelligence. Mm
1: -hmm. And and I think
0: we have to tip our hat off to uh, Anthony Ellis. Uh, Tony Ellis, who had his show, he was British by nature, and so when he came up with the concept of Frontier Gentlemen," he had a different angle of how a western should sound like.
5: I, and son uh, was very good, although True it was inspired by a television series. Yeah, I thought John Daner, to me was a better paladin than Richard Boone was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've seen a few of the TV Have guns. right something special about Daner's performance as Paladin that made it really go. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how he would have moved over to television or how successful he would have been on uh, on the back of a, an actual white horse. I, I don't know if he could do that.
5: Well, one of my, I, I don't know, if it, I think well, it may have been Bob Lyons mentioned once that John Daner spoke, I guess, at one of the Spurred back meetings at one point. And John Daner said one of his regrets was, that they never put Frontier Gentlemen on television. He thinks if Frontier Gentlemen had gone onto television, it would have been a really successful TV western. I
1: agree. I agree. It had it had a touch of class without surrendering the down and dirty Wild West, and it was a great formula, really great formula. I I wonder if John. Dana. Walden. Well, you can send me to my room anytime. Oh, heck,
5: no. You, you guys can play all night. Paul. I right, can show.
1: Oh, I don't know if I could stay up all night. That's okay.
5: But you guys. I mean, I don't want to keep you guys from playing shows if you want to. You know, I don't want to keep. If you guys want to so, play some shows. Well,
1: uh, this is interesting to me, and Walden will be our keeper. Okay. <laughs> the cage. Um, one of the things that would concern me about. John Daner moving to television, and I'm using him as an example, is that everyone who listens to a radio show and falls in love with characters or sticks with characters immediately develops a mental image of what these people must surely look like based on their actions, based on their voices, based on where they live, their family. We know exactly what these people look like until they appear in public. Yeah. And they don't look anything like what you had in your mind. I have this wonderful image that I refuse to let go of, and I'm doing a pretty good job, of Fibber and Molly. I had this perfect, I just knew when I met the actors it was going to be a perfect match. Well, I'm somewhere in Siberia with my ideas. while they're sitting here, or we're sitting here in America. I'm not even close. I'm not even close. Maybe. Maybe if I stretch, I will get Fibber's height correct, and that's it.
5: Well, I, I always visualize them as being, and, uh, and you can interpret this as far as age, anyway you want. I always interpret them as being middle age, not old, middle age, uh-huh. late 40s, early 50s, perhaps, uh, living in this town, and you know, no children. Uh, and and all of that, and just just a couple that, uh, of course, you know, Fibber never really had a job on the show. Right. So you often wonder how they, you know, how do they get yes. their bills and stuff.
0: Oh, he must have made a lot of money in Vaudeville.
5: Yeah, that's true. Yeah,
0: he he and Fred Nickney must have done so well in Rockford, Illinois, that they could retire.
5: Right, to Whistle Vista.
0: To Whistle Vista.
5: Good thing they won the house in a lottery and... Yeah, that's right, they yep. won that, that's right, they couldn't yep. have bought a house, I guess. <laughs> winning, winning that house was such a novel idea.
1: I, I like that. Walden, well, how come you didn't remind me? That could have been a trivia question. <laughs> That'll be for next year. Yeah, I... All right, but Jim, you, you rolled around the circumstances. You interpreted, I think, correctly on the age. You know where they live and how they wound up there. What do they look like?
5: I never thought about it that much, about their look. You know, I, 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 I've never been able to look at people, so I, I, you know that's an image that just doesn't come to me. But. It's,
1: not, it's not something that you would easily visualize.
5: Yeah, but I, I, I do visualize their porch. I mean, I visualize, especially when they got the door chimes.
3: Uh-huh.
5: I mean, that, that, the door, you know, before, of course, they just knocked on the door, but that chime, no one's been able to duplicate on any show a door chime quite like theirs.
0: I visualize the house being somewhat small. It's two stories because you know they got the, the sleeping quarters are upstairs. And they, and they,
1: and, they talk about Uncle Dennis.
0: Maybe. Uncle Dennis. So. And, and I, I also visualize that there's you, downstairs. You really all I can think of is you got a, a kitchen where hopefully Molly can catch the toast when it's flying by because you know February right. Tinker with the toaster. Toaster, right? Yeah, and you got the living room. And he got the closet. That's about all I visualize. down. That's all they seem to ever talk about downstairs.
3: Uh-huh.
0: So we know they got a, a back porch. Uh-huh.
3: Uh,
0: we know he, they occasionally had a garden out in front. And so they must have had an Uncle Dennis room has a moose.
5: Right, and then in the living room, you, every Christmas when they were decorating their tree, you mm-hmm. could always picture their tree there in the living room. Mm hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. They have a piano.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Oh.
1: That Fibber tries to tune every once in a while. But, but, disappointment, oh, disappointment, they created a dining room. I don't know for how many shows, but it is extremely rare. The one I remember is when Fibber and Gildersleeve were going to try to repair a watch. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they started in the dining room. They said spread it out on the dining room table, and I think they wound up in the bathtub.
0: They did. They wound up in the bathtub.
1: So they didn't lose any parts or pieces. The two of them were sitting in the bathtub with a broken watch. But it started out in the dining room, and that was the first I realized that they had a dining room. And it trashed my image of the house. I had to revise that.
5: Did you? They rarely. I mean, I know they go shopping occasionally and things like okay. that. But most of the most of the time, the show was at the house. They rarely. I don't think they, they rarely went out of town, did they?
1: Rarely went out of town. They frequently went to 14th and Oak. Yeah.
0: They went they, In 1915, January, they went to visit uh, Molly's Aunt Sarah.
1: And they did go to Alaska. Yeah. They went to California. Yeah. They
5: went to Alaska and California?
1: Yes, not at the same time.
0: Right. It would be tough to do at the same time, but they made separate trips.
5: Yeah. And I know during the war, of course, uh, they went, they, well, did they, I know they, they did a lot of, you know, things for the, uh, you know, the, all, the, all the scrap drives and the war drives. And, of course, and of course those shows are living. When you, another thing, you think about those shows being living history. Like, if you're going to study the history of World War II, and I, if I were teaching a class on World War II history, I would use their shows as illustrations of what America was like in the war.
1: then tell him.
5: Right, like the show when they dealt with Black Market meat. Yep,
0: absolutely, because Larry Gaspin pointed out the same thing, and Patricia believes that's what what, what should we do. That's the way American history should be taught if we could come up with a package and use the shows to teach kids what the war was like.
1: Just do a dog and pony to various classrooms. It will be easy to pick out particular sections or particular messages, if we're talking about rationing, Sivir and The Life of Riley and Gildersleeve, all of those shows deal with rationing, scrap collection, fat saving, why did they save fats, and you can pull all these shows together as the lesson for the day.
5: Right. Well, that, that black market one, where he, if I remember right, didn't he get some bad meat or something?
1: River got bad meat, and Riley got a ton of bread. He thought he was buying a loaf of bread on the black market, and he had a living room full. <laughs> so, I mean, he just—I don't know where he stored it in the living room, but he was squirreling it away and trying to give it away. But both of them were black markets. So in. And they were black market for different reasons in different circumstances. So it's a perfect illustration. Who knows what rationing is?
5: It was, you know, in the last few wars, you know, and I don't mean to get too political, but the last few wars we've had, the American people, and I'm talking about people within the United States, mm-hmm. have not had to make the sacrifices that they made in World War II. I mean...
1: We did not. It was a different time. It was a different era. Um, everyone to a person. I mean, you, you could probably scour the country and come up with a bus full and nothing more of people who were not not part of and fed into the enthusiasm and the spontaneity and the patriotism that went around with World War II. It was an absolutely one-of-a-kind time in our history.
5: And neither since or before, there wasn't that kind of unity. For example, in World War One.
1: No, no, it truly was one of a kind, and we're not ever going to see it again.
5: And I think one reason is, and I think radio played a major role in that unification. Agreed. We all experienced. I mean, those people that lived through it experienced the same thing. They heard the same shows.
1: Right. And the shows they loved participated in, as we talked about before, in war bond drives and scrap drives. Uh, Fibro's golf clubs wound up in a metal drive, a scrap metal drive one time, So, and that incorporated very well.
5: Well, even on the soap operas, you know, uh, they, they had to adapt their shows to fit the war, and uh, one sad note, but yet it express the truth, Ma Perkins lost her son in the war. Yes, there were people that complained to the network and the ad agency about, is that really a good message to present to people during the war during a, a story like that? And the writer said, "Well, you know, we're we're realistic. I mean, if it can affect Ma if it can affect Ma Perkins' son, it can affect anybody else in the country the same way."
1: Right. To avoid something like that creates an artificial show, and people have a hard time staying with something like that. Walden, in one man's family, did they lose a son in there?
0: Yes, they um, they lost spouses. Um,
5: I recall that that was the case. Yeah,
0: that's how our friend Aunt Waldo got killed off. She, 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 uh, she got killed in a car accident.
5: And then over a while, they thought they had lost. Was it, they thought Claudia was lost for a
0: while. Yeah, yeah so what, uh, they they they, uh, they thought she was she um she was getting married in real life, and so uh, uh she was killed. She they thought she was killed.
5: Her, her ship was torpedoed. Right,
0: and she was missing for two years, and you know never come back. So Carlton heard Barbara Foley and said, "I want to figure a way to bring her back." Mm -hmm. And so it was a whole thing, finding her in a concentration camp.
1: But we did have a show that dealt very heavily with the the wages of war, the consequences of war, the death. There were shows that did that for people and kept them in touch with reality without a threat. Well,
0: if you think about World War II, I think people forget the numbers, 300,000 Americans lost their lives. And if you think about it, how it was, the gold mothers had a lot of respect. You, because uh, I don't know if people would know, if you lost a child, if you, you a mother lost a child in the war, uh, you put a gold star in your window.
1: Right, and, and that it, signaled to everyone who walked by that, it, that. And they, they called it the sacrifice, and it was usually the mother who was recognized for this. Right, it, it was the sacrifice was made and people respected that respected the family um just had them put them on a different plane mm-hmm. from regular folks
5: yeah well also you know we we knew what the issues were i mean it wasn't
1: interesting point it was clear cut we
5: you, i mean with our recent wars we knew what the political, what the leaders told us the issues were. Right. But we never knew what, but they didn't define, and, I, and, and I'm not talking about one war in particular, the last three or four wars. Mm-hmm. You haven't, you never, we never got a clear indication of what victory meant. We never declared wars in those cases, which, which is, that's what's always about, you know, I'll just say one political thing. I don't think we should send troops to fight unless we declare war. And when I say declare war, I mean, like World War II. Where the president goes to Congress and says, I ask for a declaration of war. But we clearly know what the issues are, and we know what victory is. And unless if we're not willing to win.
0: Well, I think that's similar. If you remember 2001, when 9-11 happened, how the country rallied within that first six months to nine months, it must have been very similar to what happened six years sooner in Pearl Harbor.
5: Yeah.
1: Yes, that, that was the emotional response. It was the the fire and the fury to protect and respond and retaliate.
0: Right, and, and because we were attacked in both scenarios.
1: Right.
5: People yeah. have argued that what the president should have done is declared, de- ask for a declaration of war right in that first week or two against, you know, whoever, you know, the group uh, was fighting.
1: But, again, it, it's a political decision that we're talking about, yet at the same time the social climate was so similar to what we're talking about with old-time radio. It's a, it's a bridge. People who lived through or, or are alive, I'm not talking about little kids who are nine years old, but people who were old enough to recognize what was happening, and could get swept up in the emotional um, tsunami. Really, it was emotional tsunami that washed, washed through the country and caught people up in this emotional response. Was precisely what we saw in the 1940s. Only it didn't end. In 2001, it started and it just kind of petered out. It didn't stay with us. In World War II, it never left until the boys came home.
5: And I think a lot of the too, is, and again, I go back to radio. uh, Agreed. Radio in the 2000s did not have programming that truly inspired the public. I'm not saying that all, that it would have, you know, that we would have reacted different, but radio did not have the the same, we we don't, like, we did not have... On Armed Forces Radio in this last war, a command performance type of show where today stars go entertain troops. I mean, it's not the same kind of thing. Uh
3: huh.
5: Which you had in World War Two, you had you know the stars that went to entertain the stars, not a, and and also service men were frequently the guest on radio programs like quiz shows and the like.
1: And ones who were drafted, but were in show business and had show business backgrounds were put to work in the entertainment area for the troops as moral builders and entertainment.
0: Well, so. think, and just think of it. Jimmy Stewart, Clark Gable, Gino, they were not figurehead soldiers. They actually flew.
5: Right, and they gave up their, They gave and some of the baseball players too. They yeah, gave, Bob Feller. They gave up their careers to fight the war. To
0: be actively serving fighting the war.
5: Today, I don't know. If any star, and it's not, again, maybe, maybe I'm being, you know, old and cynical, but I can't picture today's performers giving up their careers to go fight. But maybe it's a different. But then again, it's a different time, a different attitude.
1: Right. If we're talking about teaching history based on what happened in the old-time radio era and World War II era. These are these are striking contrasts that would help kids understand what history is all
5: about. Well, also, with, with, I'm thinking about news as one who collects news programs, which is one of my interests.
3: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
5: If you listen to the news commentators in World War II, whether they be, Murrow's reports from London.
3: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm
5: reporters in this country that did news analysis programs, Raymond Swing or Fulton Lewis or whoever you chose to listen to, Calton Bourne, it wasn't just a quick sound bite. Right. There were 15-minute news programs that went into great detail on what the war was like. Uh Uh-huh. All the ramifications. Every day you could hear your favorite commentator or two or three commentators Uh from different perspectives. Today, on radio and television, and I'll stick to radio because that's the field I really know. The average newscast is three or four minutes on the network, and hardly time to explain anything. It's all quick.
1: International, national, and local.
5: Right. Well, in World War II, you you could get a full understanding of that day's war news just by listening to a few programs.
0: Right. I also don't, I just got thinking, if we were talking about, uh, the culture today versus the culture of World War Two, and I got thinking, I think I know why the culture of World War Two is a little different than today. If you think about it, the country was still in the midst of a Great Depression for almost a dozen years. Huh? And a lot of people hung together. I mean, it was, like, my, it was very common knowledge in my mother hometown. Uh, my grandmother fed a lot of hobos because hobos had synods where, where homes had, they must have marked them somehow. They knew where they could get a meal. Uh
1: uh-huh.
0: And so you had sort of a, a giving generation that made sacrifices for the greater good throughout the 30s and, they, and somewhat still carried into the 40s. And so you had that climate in a way, and I don't know if we necessarily had that today.
5: Well, the other thing is, you know, we had we had all those all that prosperity in the fifties and sixties, seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, we had some inflation in the seventies, but certainly in the fifties and sixties, we had immense prosperity in this country. And today, the, with the meltdowns and things in recent years, the recent meltdown, I think one of the problems is today in our credit card re- uh, rush society where you can get things instantaneously. You don't have to wait to buy something. You you buy it immediately. In fact, if you you save and don't buy it, you're criticized. You hear commercials today on the radio that say, well, if you're $10,000 in debt or more, we're willing to work with you, treating you almost like if you're $10,000 in debt, it's almost like an honor, you know, to be in debt. Uh My parents' generation... You didn't want to be
1: $10 in debt. Right. And uh, as my parents' and grandparents' generation, they didn't know the word credit. If they couldn't pay for it, they didn't buy it, and that included food.
3: Right.
0: Uh, I know in my my dad's family um, in the Midwest, there was no money at all, none. And my, my dad's dad uh, died in 1940. They probably think it's such of stress. Because he carried the whole county, and what they did, they loaned credit for farmers to have the equipment to try to raise food to feed America.
5: Yeah. And
0: so, a lot of credit was basically honored. And when, when uh, my grandfather passed away, uh, that's when my grandmother go had to go find, go back to school and find and leave, leave the area because nobody had any money to pay anything back. Well,
5: they even bartered in the 30s. Yeah.
0: I I on my on my mom's side, he was a a lawyer, my grandfather, and we still have the um, the receipts from the '30s. He bought a lot of it for a chicken here or something there. Mm-hmm. His services.
5: <coughs> yes. Well, the unification uh, that people had, and if if we had something today like the depression in the '30s, I, I'm very pessimistic about the American people today. Being able to stick together and go through it because the the, in, the the instant pudding or instant gratification thing is so ingrained now. Right. That I I think there would I don't think the more I don't think the nation would have the moral fiber today. And I'm, I'm I mean some might I'm just, I don't know the majority I don't think would have the moral fiber.
0: I don't know. There's something about Americans that's so unique. We're seeing it in Haiti right now. Remember today, George Bush announcement. Please uh, uh, announce. Don't we are getting so many donations to our website. Please forgive us because our confirmation to get out to your low weight. People are just donating when they see such a, a tragedy, and Americans have that somewhat generous nature about themselves. And I don't somehow that comes from somewhere.
5: Uh-huh. That's true. And when you think we have the, the president, I guess it's right, President Obama today, I guess, met with...
0: Quentin Bush, yeah. Was it,
5: was it George Sr. Or, or... Junior, the, Junior. It was, it, was, it was W. Okay, George W. Okay, yeah. well, anyway, all three were at the White House today. Right. Trying to get this thing going, and uh, it is true. And when you think about, we have always gone to other nations in, our tra- in tragedy. I'm talking about something within our own borders. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. I think one of the things that is distinguishing our generation from the World War II generation is the Depression. They came off, or they were still in, they had not come off the Depression. They went into the war while they were in a Depression, so they were accustomed to cutting back, they were accustomed to being frugal, they were accustomed to doing without, they were flexible. They knew what had to be done in order to survive, and they just carried that through to the war and intensified on it because there was another factor going in there. But in the meantime, because of the Depression and because of it lasting so long and the neighborhood and neighbor practices that were going on in neighborhoods, it was easy to Buy into, um, that's a harsh term. I don't mean buy into, but it was easy to fall into a routine where people watched out for each other because they were friends and they were neighbors. We don't have friends and neighbors like they did. We have people who live next door to us.
5: Yeah, I'm, at 90, I'm at 99% of the people. I, I don't know who my neighbors are, really. I have to be honest with you. If you live, no, know my neighbors. I mean, I might see one occasionally that says hello, but. You'll recognize them, but
1: you don't
5: know them. And I guess that way, probably a lot of the people, they don't socialize the way they used to. You know, neighbors used to, uh, when the mother would go shopping or she'd say to her next door neighbor, will you, will uh, you take my kids and I'll, I'll take your kids when I go shopping? When you go shopping, you know, they interchange things. Yes.
1: They did, and it, in a sense it was a bartering system, I'll pick up your groceries if you watch my kids type thing, and that was an exchange of services for services. So they they bartered, and that was a way of life, but again, it was only because they knew each other's neighbors, and part of that came from having a one-income family.
5: Yeah, that does make a difference.
1: The, the father would be out. And the mother was with other mothers, doing homemaking and raising kids. Yeah. That was an open door for them to to know each other, to meet each other, to know what they could do for each other. It was just a whole different time.
5: I've been thinking, and I don't mean, if, I'm not laughing. at I mean, you're you're certainly right, but I'm just thinking that. We've really covered the gamut tonight, haven't we? I mean, for subject matter. We've really put it up. But in a a way, it's all related because radio did reflect those values.
0: Well, I think that's the beauty about old-time radio. uh, uh, There's something about the intellectual part of it, and I'm not being a snob, but you will find that a lot of people who love old-time radio have more than one interest. Yeah. They're, they're, they are uh, some of them are some can talk again. gamut. It, it's a very oh, sure. There's few there's a few out there that's, that don't have the social skills. But the ones that are truly social, who time, they they're interested in a lot of different things. And I can of sure think what sure what are uh, what we got tonight. If you think about it.
5: Well, like Walden and I, for example, and like Tricia, sure, you're 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 a writer and you have literary interests. Walden and I are kind of history buffs, mm-hmm. so in addition to radio, American history is kind of our bailiwick. Mm-hmm. And then other people, you know, have uh, yeah. have the have other interests. Like Dr. Beal is into record collecting, mm-hmm. and uh-huh. this person and then, uh, uh, somebody else uh, might be into something else who listens to history. Listen but we 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 all have. Well, radio is, is kind of the the uh, main force that we're interested in. We have other interests as well.
3: uh mm-hmm.
5: And radio just kind of unites that interest because it was a symbol for all of us of something that we all either experienced together or we read about it or and, heard, and then have, have, hearing these recordings, heard about it, witnessed this unifying force.
3: Uh-huh.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's still happening in small circles, like the old time radio circle, which is intimate and small by comparison to uh, the Knights of Columbus and the veterans and the Shriners Club. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a more intimate
5: group. Right. Well, it's also like we're we're all um, you know we we don't we we we're not going to be as uh, there aren't as many of us as say so, that are going to see. That movie that's done so well the last few weeks, I even forgot the name of it. It, It's the one with the animated, you know. Right,
0: the one that James Cameron put together.
5: Right. I mean, far more people are into that than than what we're into. But we're into something very special ourselves.
1: They're they're into that this week. We're into this forever.
5: Right. That that, will be gone in a few weeks.
0: Patricia, write that down. Save that.
1: Save what? That
0: quote you get created.
1: Oh, yeah, I think that's a good one. That's what
0: I mean. We'll keep that one. You can use that for for some other project. Oh,
1: good. Okay. Yeah. All right. I have to write it down or it's going to be out of my head. But Hold on, you remember everything. You'll remind me of what it is. So oh, again, what's
5: the name of that movie again? <laughs> <laughs> name of the movie now. Uh, you can say, hey, what the hey they'll be into that. Yeah, that's what's the point. Yeah, that's it. We don't even remember the name of the, no. Oh, it. No, no. But we it, remember the names of our radio show.
1: Right. Uh, what a cut! Oh, Walden, you're wounded. I can see it.
5: Have you ever, t- Patricia, thought about writing a book on some of uh, uh, on radio, or do you have you have you tried to write a book on any subject? Or I'm I've,
1: I've been talking and toying. I'm talking with Walden and toying with a couple of ideas that are old time radio related that I think would make really good copy, and wonderfully interesting It's interesting reading and good history inclusions because of the people who crossed so many generations. Um, I'll, I'll talk about Eddie Carroll, who, I mean, everybody knows who Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket are. He's Jiminy Cricket and has been for more than 35 years. Now, he's crossed two generations. Little kids who grew up to be moms and even grandmoms. So these got these little kids, the middle and the older generation. It's just an extraordinary opportunity. The problem is there are so, so few magazines that are left standing. I mean, they're they're tumbling to the hundreds.
5: Oh yes, it's kind of like we talked about earlier about Bear Manor and. Just a few publishers like Bear Manor and McFarland and one or two others will, 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 will would publish a book. Would even consider publishing a book on these subjects?
1: Right. Um, so yes, that that is number one. Um, even in the article side of it, as Walden and I were talking, it's reasonable to generate a series of articles that are old time radio related and. It, with a clearly defined audience, which is paramount. I mean, you talk to somebody who's new to writing and and you say, well, who is your audience? And the answer is, boom, 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 everybody.
3: <laughs> you can't write
1: for everybody. You have to write for somebody. And so, but the audiences are clearly defined here, so the outlet and the magazines are clearly defined, except they're not there anymore. What they're accepting from the outside is extraordinarily limited. Uh, whereas entire publications used to be freelance and take in work from a variety of writers, which was wonderful because it gave them a variety of styles. And, and about
5: all the like in the fiction field, all of the pulp writers, Ray Bradbury and all these people, got their start by writing for pulp magazines.
3: Uh-huh. Freelance
5: and got paid for a story being accepted.
1: Right. Um- it,
5: it's hard to get fiction even published in magazines these days, isn't it?
1: Yes. And that was my mainstay. I've been locked up in uh, business writing, marketing, public relations, uh, advertising, or not very limited in advertising, but mostly public relations and marketing. And it swallowed me up. I have lost my magazine contacts. I've been away from that for about 10 years. And that's a long time to lose contact in the publishing industry because it changes by the week.
5: And, they, and they, generally they want someone to have an agent for a publisher to even consider looking at something, right? They, I mean, unsolicited manuscripts are very few and far between, I understand.
1: In the book industry, it is frequently a preference on a publishing house that a book go through an agent because it will have been through first reading. The agent has already developed a relationship with particular publishing houses. So they're there are merits to trying to land a, uh, an agent. If you can't land an agent, there's no problem going directly to the publisher. There are a couple of ways that you have to do it to give yourself a leg up on the competition. And you can do that. Uh, it, it's, uh, but getting a book published today is discouraging. It is discouraging, especially because not only for the price of it, But we're moving to electronic books. We've got the Internet, and you can get entire books on the Internet. And so the market for, especially hardcover books, the market for new books in the marketplace is self-limiting. It's getting smaller and smaller. So finding appropriate outlets, number one, is a challenge for something like old-time radio because it is highly specialized, and it does require an audience, a specific audience. It's not like you can do a shotgun lifestyle magazine. It has a specific audience.
5: When you talk about the show business subject in general, Mm -hmm. you write a book, say, about the movie industry, Mm -hmm. television, or rock. Mm -hmm. You have a much better chance of getting it published than you do radio. Uh mm-hmm. huh. I
3: mean,
5: uh, right. I looked. I had my mom look the L.A. Times when Dunning's book came out.
3: Uh huh.
5: We couldn't find any reviews on it in any of the. I mean, it was in one academic journal, I think, or a library journal, or something. Right. Didn't find the L.A. Times doing a review on, on, on a number of the books that I've heard about on the digest and elsewhere and, and in the radiogram.
2: Right. I had
5: my mom look up reviews on these books, and we couldn't find reviews on any of them.
1: Mm -mm. No, and that's not unusual. Um, They're not mass-market, they're not out of big publishing houses, and something like John Dunning's book would be in the reference category, and a reference book has much less of a chance of getting reviewed than a novel or a a really hot nonfiction book.
5: Or, 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 like I said, if it's, a, if it's about the movies. I'm just using, I just use well, movies as an example.
0: Well, I'm just thinking, one of Malkins...
5: That's more current.
0: One of Malkins' book on old-time radio, been a dozen years or so, probably got reviews because Warner's known as a movie guy.
5: Right, it, it did. And as a matter of fact, he was a guest on that show that uh, the Family Channel used to have, Home and Family, with
2: uh-huh.
5: the, girl that, the lady that was married to John DeLorean... I forgot her. Oh,
0: Christine, I think.
5: Yeah, she was a host on that show, mm-hmm. and her she and her co-host interviewed John. I mean, not John. Dunn, interviewed uh Moulton. Moulton about about the big broadcast. Yeah,
0: and I think because he because it's his book because it's his background that's why he probably got reviewed rather than the actual. And I I got the book. I haven't sat down and read it. I'm imagining it's very good, but uh, because it's, his background,
5: helped. Uh, it helped. Where John? I mean. Uh, we, we were looking, we were hoping that John Darning might be on Good Morning America or one of those shows with uh-huh. the book, but it, but, it, but it, the only interviews were <laughs> Walden's interview and the Gasman's, to my knowledge. Uh, These were, well, you did a better job Walden than Good Morning America would have done anyway. Oh, thank you.
1: Oh, true. But they, they did interviews and they wrote a book mm-hmm. as opposed to they did interviews because
5: he wrote a book.
1: Right. And there's a pretty sharp distinction between the two. So. Oh well, we have we solved the world's problems here?
5: Well, we, we've certainly agreed on one thing: that radio was such a uniting force. And like and, I and say, even if we even if we've gone all over the map, it's all interrelated in some respect to our subject. Absolutely,
1: Absolutely. culturally, everybody came home, and it was collective family time everybody
5: listen to the radio right and and, it, and it's you know it, it's uh it's far more interesting than listening to uh just one more show about the green valley line the green Valley line or about a golfer that's had some problems or something like that mm-hmm. yeah it's a... you know, but but yeah you're right it's, 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 these shows were wonderful and uh I don't we, it's funny we we haven't played very many tonight we've kind of got I hope people are not disappointed.
0: Oh, they, they, they never. thats what—that's what, that's the fun of the live show. You never know what you get.
5: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and who knows tomorrow night what's going to happen? I mean, that's,
0: that's right. When
5: Dr. Mike calls tomorrow, you may get into a subject that might inspire a whole evening of conversation. You never know. You never know. Thank you, Jim. It's always a pleasure, Patricia, talking to you in Walden.
1: Thank you, Jim. It was really nice that you called in, and I appreciate the talk. It was great.
5: By the way, I I, I haven't had a chance to play them yet because my player, I'm going to be picking it up. It's it's prepared. It's just a matter of getting over to Oakland to get it. But I got the CDs, and I thank you for those.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad you got them.
5: And going to enjoy them very much. And you have a good night, Walden, and everything, and we'll be listening to you all tomorrow night.
1: Thank you,
0: Jim.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Patricia.
1: Bye-bye.
0: And there's our good friend, Jim.
1: Uh-huh. We well, have time for one phone call from somebody who wasn't bored by us? Sure. If you want to make another call,
0: 714-545-2071. is standing over there in the corner waving at us. So
1: They've got 2.7 minutes to call and tell us they weren't bored. <laughs> we have to be content to think that maybe... They weren't listening at all.
0: No. Nah, everybody wasn't, to Patricia.
1: Oh, come, come, come. Okay, one phone call, 2.5
0: minutes. 714-545-2071. Will you be that caller out there? 714-545-2071. I don't think I can call my dad. He's probably asleep, so I don't think that would count. No,
1: you can't. You can't count
0: that. There's I can't. I can't make a call to wake somebody up to say I listen to you guys. So we need help.
1: There's got to be someone in an area of the world where the sun is shining. That's right. That, that would help. You know, if Jay was from Japan was still living in Japan. Dave, you could have called. We could have picked on him. But yeah. anyway, it has been really a wonderful night in for me. Anyway, well, I loved it, and, Patricia. I, I have learned so much. I got to talk to wonderful people. My goodness, can we keep going until, uh, let's see, Wednesday? <laughs> we could, but you
0: know, I think Bill, Bill, Bill and Mike got a couple of guests, and I don't think they want us to bump their guests on Monday and Tuesday night. No, so. oh, I
1: guess not. I'll just have to wait for the next time. Well,
0: Patricia will join me in two weeks, uh, with Joe Franklin, and that will be a hoot.
1: I hope it's a hoot. I am so looking forward to this. Walden tells me that I speak New Yorkese. (laughs) Uh, uh, Joe Franklin and I should be a good match, and I know who he is. I have had the pleasure of watching him on his uh, New York talk show, Memory Lane, he is wonderful. He's a great interviewer. He loves people. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I,
0: I, I think it will be an evening that will be remembered, and I hope everybody, you run tape on this one, because I know we want to make sure we capture that one too.
1: Uh-huh. You may recall Joe Franklin was at the Newark convention. That's right. He was at the same convention Barry Farber was at. I don't I think they were there together. They were
0: uh, Joe with the Hole and Barry Juan to Guess.
1: Okay, so they were there together. Yeah. And my instructions to Walden were please get me an interview with Barry Gray uh, Barry Farber because I would crawl on blast to have one and please don't come back without Joe Franklin's book because I have to have it. So, I got Joe Franklin's book, Walden arranged a wonderful interview with Barry Farber, who is one of two people considered the father of modern-day talk radio, and he was fabulous. Um, The man speaks 28 languages, and I don't mean gets through a checkout line, (laughs) 28 languages. Um, And of course, Joe Franklin is into everything <laughs> just into everything in news in personalities in the theater and uh, has been broadcasting for 60 years yep sixty sure. years i mean it, it's it's just incredible and he is still broadcasting so these are, are just wonderful so i got my book I got my interview with Barry Farber and now, as an added treat, I get to talk with Joe Franklin. And I am just so excited about that. I'm, I'm, I really am. It's You've been good. Wonderful night.
0: You've been good. That's why you get all the Christmas gifts.
1: <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I just didn't tell you bad things.
3: <laughs>
1: <But> it's <laughs> nice that you think so. That's true. Yeah. So. Well, Patricia... You have to play
0: something for people? I, I will play something for people. Okay. And you want to wish everybody a, a, a wonderful morning?
1: I will. I wish you all a wonderful morning. Thank you for putting up with me. Thank you, Walden, for letting me come out and play tonight. And I did have a wonderful time.
0: I'm glad.
1: I did. I really did. I'm Thank you, glad. everybody.
0: And here's
3: Patricia's show that he might know something about. Pepê McGee and Molly.